Professor Adnan Hussein, you have an event on Tuesday, don't you? I do. Uh, Professor Juan Cole from the University of Michigan, a noted scholar of the Middle East, uh, will be talking about his uh, recent book, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, at 5.30 p.m. on the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Facebook page. Uh, it'll be streaming live at 5.30 p.m. on Tuesday, Juan August, Cole. October 6th. Juan Cole, that's right. And t- we had him on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Tell everybody who Juan Cole is. Well, Juan Cole is um, a historian, mostly a modern historian of the Middle East, um, but he ranges very widely, and not just the Arab Middle East, but across uh, South Asia and the Persian world. Uh, he's written on all these uh, topics, many, many important books and studies, of which one he'll be speaking about. Uh, but he really became uh, one of the important public intellectuals in the 2000s and the post 9-11 and Iraq war period, his blog informed comment was indispensable for understanding the world and the politics of our time. And he made important interventions in that period and has continued to do so. And how do we we watch it on Facebook, correct? Yeah, on Facebook Live, it'll be streaming. Um, What do we have to do? Who do we have to follow in order to see it? You just have to follow uh, my uh, uh, project's Facebook page. So it's, you know, slash MSGPQU, because it's Muslim Society's Global Perspectives at Queen's University. Give it one more time so people can find it on Facebook. So Facebook.com slash or backslash msgpqu fantastic i'm gonna watch thank you great
It is 6.02 in New York City. The temperature is about 65 degrees. Here's the mop-up for October 5th, 2020. I like that, calling it the mop-up. Here's the mop-up for October 5th, 2020. Don't be afraid of COVID-19, says President Trump, who is expected to return to the White House later tonight to finish reinfecting the rest of his staff. Don't be afraid of COVID-19. Make friends with COVID-19. Well, after three nights at Walter Reed, Donald Trump was told he could leave by his doctor, Dr. Sean P. Conley, an osteopath. That's a, a bone doctor. He insists, Dr. Conley insists, that the president is not out of the woods quite yet. Dr. Conley said in a press conference today that Trump was given a third treatment of remdesivir and that Trump is also on a steroid drug called dexamethasone, which scientists say is a late stage treatment given to those with severe cases of COVID-19. So he's getting all the experimental cocktails you could uh, ask for. I just hope he doesn't get a surprise bill when all is said and done. I would hate to have him working in the Oval Office and just this this crazy bill comes from Anthem that he that he can't pay because he only has seven hundred and fifty dollars to give to the government. So he's on he's juicing, essentially. He's on dexamethasone and the side effects include mania, psychosis, depression and delusions of grandeur. So uh, let's hope he doesn't uh, start acting strange. Trump's blood oxygen levels reportedly dropped twice, but Dr. Conley refused to say if there was any damage to the president's lungs. I'm David Feldman here in New York City, where COVID-19 is on the rise. Who would have ever guessed that allowing restaurants to set up tables on the sidewalk and allow pedestrians, New Yorkers, to whiz right past your plate of oysters Who would have ever guessed that that could be bad for your health? Because when I think hygiene, I think New York City sidewalks. They're going to close the schools down and certain zip codes are also going to be shut down here in New York City. There are only 28 days left until the election and new polling shows Donald Trump's approval ratings are sinking lower than his blood oxygen levels. No sympathy from Americans. We're we're a cruel people. Everybody thought, oh, he's going to get a bump once he goes to the hospital. They're going to feel sorry for him. No, we hate him even more. A new poll shows that two thirds of Americans, this is cruel, two thirds of Americans believe Donald Trump would not have the coronavirus had he taken the threat more seriously. That is so cruel for Americans to preach personal responsibility. Reuters in a national poll shows that Joe Biden is leading Trump by 10 points. This is this is slowly getting into an impossible to steal election. This is getting hard to steal. A New York Times poll shows Biden leading Trump in Pennsylvania. That's a key swing state by eight points. Well, advisors all weekend said they expected Trump to to return to the White House on Monday. And as the world spent the day all of Monday waiting for a press briefing from Trump's 
doctors, the osteopath, Dr. Conley, an osteopath, while they were waiting for Trump's doctors uh, to go to the White House lectern outside Walter Reed, the lectern, I'm not making this up, was covered in a garbage bag. How appropriate that they would cover Dr. Conley's White House lectern with a garbage bag. Speaking of garbage bags, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany announced on Monday that she, too, has tested positive for the coronavirus. Maybe she should wear a bigger cross around her neck. That that could have maybe protected her. The Washington Post is reporting that along with McEnany, two other White House communications officers have also tested positive for COVID-19. McEnany says so far she is asymptomatic. She says she doesn't feel a thing. Then again, if she could feel anything, she wouldn't work for President Donald Trump. Hours before announcing she was positive, McEnany spoke with reporters not wearing a mask. White House Chief of Staff, this Cretan Mark Meadows, he continues to speak with reporters not wearing a mask. There's a great piece about Mark Meadows in Politico, in their magazine over the weekend, where he literally got on his hands and knees to beg John Boehner for forgiveness when Meadows kind of worked against him to try to get a different speaker. This guy is an opportunistic infection worse than COVID-19. So this is where it stands right now. President Trump and First Lady Melania have tested positive. Hope Hicks, the White House advisor, has tested positive. Republican Senator Mike Lee from Utah, Senator Tom Tillis, Republican Senator from North Carolina, Senator Ron Johnson, Republican Senator from Wisconsin, all have tested positive. The National Committee chairwoman for the Republican Party, Ronna McDaniel, has also tested positive. The Reverend John Jenkins, he's the president of the University of Notre Dame. He attended that Rose Garden ceremony in late September to welcome President Trump's new pick for the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett. He, the president of Notre Dame, has tested positive, as has Amy Coney Barrett over the summer. Former counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway, was at the event, and she announced that she is positive. Trump's campaign manager, Bill Stepien, he has tested positive. Trump's debate advisor, Chris Christie, has checked himself into a hospital because he's tested positive. Chris Christie, as we all know, is a super spreader, but only when it comes to cream cheese. Trump's personal assistant, Nick Luna, he's his body man. He's tested positive. Attorney General Bill Barr was also at that Rose Garden ceremony without a mask. He is self-quarantining. On today's show, we'll give you an update on the president's condition, what kind of regimen he's on when immunobiologist Henry Huckamacki stops by. We had a great COVID town squares Saturday night. Thank you to everybody who showed up. The irritable immunologist and Henry Huckamaki have been on top of this since this pandemic started. Well, Bill Clinton was the last Democrat to carry Arizona when he was running for reelection back in 1996. 
A New York Times Siena poll released earlier today shows Joe Biden leading Trump among likely Arizona voters by eight percentage points. This is this is getting bigger. This this is the floor is collapsing underneath Donald Trump. You cannot steal a landslide this large and how he climbed from down with tyranny, the founder and the treasurer of the Blue America Pack. He's going to be on the show in about 50 minutes. And he writes over down with tyranny that there's going to be a massive blue wave, an anti-Trump wave on November 3rd. He writes about senior citizens turning to Biden, uh, especially in Florida. And Biden, according to Howie Klein, has doubled his lead since the debate. Meanwhile, back in Arizona, former astronaut Mark Kelly, he's a Democrat. He's married to former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who was forced to leave Congress after getting shot in the face. The new Times Siena poll shows him, astronaut Mark Kelly, leading Republican Senator Martha McSally by 11 points in Arizona. 11 points in Arizona. McSally was appointed by Governor Doug Ducey to replace John Kyle, who was also appointed by Ducey to fill the seat after Senator John McCain died in 2018. So McSally, they're both running for uh, McSally and astronaut Mark Kelly are running for John McCain's old seat. Uh, Meanwhile, Cindy McCain, the wife of the late Republican John McCain, has endorsed Joe Biden. And finally, the Pope over the weekend warned that the forces of, quote, myopic, extremist, resentful and aggressive nationalism are on the rise. In a new encyclical, the Pope called for the world to support the marginalized. Gee, Imagine that. He said we should support migrants and we should resist our nationalist, populist and tribalist impulses. The Pope attacked global financiers and specifically the dogma of neoliberal faith. The Pope went after neoliberals this weekend. He said the spread of the virus has lifted the Band-Aid up to reveal the wounds of global inequality. And on climate change, he wrote, quote, I do not want to speak of divine retribution, nor would it be sufficient to say that the harm we do to nature is itself the punishment for our offenses. I like this pope. The pope went after the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, writing, quote, In many instances, debt repayment not only fails to promote development, but gravely limits and conditions it. He went on to call for debt forgiveness for third world countries. That's the Pope. We're going to be talking about all that stuff coming up. But first, let's go to Denton, Texas, where the great Professor Mike Steinel is standing by. Hello there, Professor Mike Steinel. Hello, David. Thank you for the theme song for the COVID Town Squares. Oh yeah, I you know I I, I got to get in and and check out the um, on Saturday. I didn't get to it, but thanks for playing it. Thank you for writing it. Uh, your music. We're, we're having Harvey J K on 
uh, tonight. And I'm, all I'm thinking about is I can't wait to play the Harvey J. <laughs> K. Love theme. So. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Now, you wrote a novella. Did you send me a book on tape over the weekend? What did you send me? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it on tape uh, just because I can. And uh, by the way. What kind of microphone do you have there? You said, that's a nice mic. I noticed that when I made this book on tape, I did the first half of it. I had a lot of peas. I was popping my peas. Right. I could st- Does that mic that you have, is that the M7B? Sure. I, I, I don't know. Somebody told me. It sounds really it. good. I, I, I'm not sure what it is, but I don't pop my peas. No, you don't. You, know, you, you, you step way back from it. Maybe I should just back off the mic. Yeah. Let me introduce Mike Steinell. He's a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator, and he's been a member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty since 1987. I believe you no longer teach. You are, you are the author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble and Building a Jazz Vocabulary, and you are doing some of the greatest themes. So I call them love themes, like the <laughs> Harvey K. Love theme and the, you know, the uh, the Howie Klein love theme. Oh, you by have, the way, I need to fix the Howie. He, he moved. He moved. I, he, the song is so good. You say that he no. lives in San Diego. <laughs> and I said, rather than have Professor Steinel rewrite the lyrics, Howie has agreed to move from his home in Los Angeles to San Diego. That's how great the song Why is. did I think he, for some reason, I thought you would always go to San Diego. He's, I thought he was in San Diego. No. By the way, that's that's a that's a more, he lives in San Diego where it never rains. You know, I, right. he lives in L.A. That is not as good. No. Lives in San Diego is, is a hipper, hipper rhythm to it, you know. I can listen that's to not. your music all day, and I do, on Spotify. I hope that helps you. You have a new album out, came out a year ago. You made it with Rosanna Eckert. It's called Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet. You can buy it wherever great jazz is made. And I hope you're going to put out another album. Well, you know, I, it, right now I just make these things where I do it all myself. And it's it's not as much fun as getting together with people. And no. and uh, I miss my, my buddies on that. Yeah. I was you know, feeling I, I was feeling kind of lonely today before oh, the show right. started, and then I saw you and Dan Frankenberger, and all of a sudden, I go, oh, this is going to be. I was like nervous, and then once you start connecting with other people, you feel better. Hey, I have a question. Yes. So I sent you two tracks, and the first one was a mistake because I didn't have a fade out. You know, one of the hardest things to do is to end a song, come up with an ending. Right. You know, and uh, so the easy thing that I often do, as your audience will realize, is just do a board fade. Mm-hmm. You know, when I get bored, it fades anyway. Um, so I, I sent you the second one, which has a fade. But it's it occurred to me that doing stand up, you must really have to think about the last joke. You Do you save? Do you know you got a killer at the end? No. It bothers me. I, I had uh, my my big closer is uh, you'll notice that unlike most of the comedians you you see, I don't use the F word. 
because I have too much respect for you cocksuckers. <laughs> and uh, that was my big closer. I could always, I always had that as my closer. Somehow that doesn't get you a standing ovation, calling the audience <laughs> cocksuckers. And it's the story of my stand-up career. I, they would laugh. I'd call them cocksuckers, and the audience would laugh. But yeah. they, then they, the, the applause would just die because I just called them cocksuckers. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, you want to end. I think you want to end with a big surge of love. From the audience, that's never what a I was. Surge of love. Yeah, you want them that to love you. That sounds like you could get arrested for that. <laughs> <laughs> I could never give that to the audience. I just couldn't pander that way. I wanted to. I just had to call them cocksuckers. Hence my career. What do you have for us? You wrote a new song. How many songs do you write a week? Uh, I only write them when you when you need a song. You're the best. <laughs> no, the best. I, you know I have these. It's it's a been a pretty. F- I go through uh, periods where I don't do much, and then all of a sudden I boom, boom, boom. I wrote on a spring break. I wrote like ten children's songs, uh, and I think they're pretty good. But I don't, I don't know what to do with them. Nobody's buying them. But now I have a grandson. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a vinyl. I'm gonna release them on vinyl because my children will not play anything but vinyl. And what do you charge a grandson for? for, for a <laughs> I'm gonna, it's gonna be a gift. Oh, that's, that's hey, but that. I wrote this song and it was about sort of about my trip up to Kansas, and we joked about a little that you know I'd gone up to Kansas, a very red state, and uh, so the the uh, the hook is uh, my my. Oh, my, my, so many signs, all these Trump-Pence signs, I'm 300 miles behind enemy lines. But the truth is, if I go any direction 10 miles from where I sit right now, I'm already behind enemy lines, you know. In Texas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I was out in... uh, there's an area of big development, really beautiful homes, so many Trump. And every now I'd see, a, uh, you know, uh, who's the other guy? Oh, Biden. Yeah. Biden, Biden Harris. I'd see a Biden Harris sign. I go, oh, OK, great. And uh, and the thing is, and I was reading this editorial about this, um, this person who puts up uh, Biden and Harris signs in uh, Alabama. And she's talking about trying to... Um, get Doug Jones elected and how she loves and hates the South, you know, being, um, you know, um, an island of blue. That's part of the, one of the lyrics is I'm an island of blue in an ocean of red, you know. Um, so that it's interesting. Doug is Why? running against Tommy Tuberville. Yes. You should yes, be able I, to beat a guy named Tuberville, Tommy Tuber. I guess he's a big sports hero. Right. Well, he was the the Auburn coach. I mean, it's, yeah. that's that's a religion down there is in Alabama is. You know, I did I did my um, sabbatical in Alabama and it was terrific. I really loved Birmingham and I went to Selma and I went to Montgomery where so where the, the bus boycott. And, uh, you know, it's just it's an amazing thing. And there's so many wonderful people there. And um but uh, the South is, you know, I don't think it's the South as much as just rural versus urban or suburban. And I, I can't figure out what it is about rural America that um, is so red. Why do they go so red? Because um, at one time, Kansas was uh, um, 
it, it was, you know, FDR country. My my grandmother was a staunch FDR Democrat, you know. Well, they did they see the light. Him. They did see the light. I think Kansas had Governor Brown back and he was a Republican. Yeah. And as he used Kansas as a laboratory of democracy and cut taxes for the wealthiest and Kansas racked up massive debt. And even the Republicans in the state house voted to raise taxes. They admitted that what we have known for 40 years trickle down economics is a lie. Hey, yeah. your attorney general in Texas is has Get been indicted. He was indicted years ago, but now they're revealing that he's broken more laws, right? Well, of course he has. That <laughs> goes with the job, doesn't it? Ken Paxton is <laughs> his name. Yeah, I I just read that in the um in the New York Times. Yeah. I love the New York Times. Yeah. You know, it uh, my lifeline to uh, civilization. Yeah. <laughs> Let's play your song. What what is it called and what what inspired it? Okay. Oh my my so many signs. I'm 300 miles behind enemy lines. It's about being in uh, a red state when you're a bluish kind of person. Okay. Not Jewish, but bluish. Bluish, same thing. Same thing. Okay. Blue. <laughs> this is the latest from Professor Mike Steinell. enemy lines I'm blending in not causing a fuss when it comes to politics I never discuss I'm an island of blue in an ocean of red four more years I might be better off dead Signs. I'm 300 miles behind enemy lines. Gotta get behind Joe, it's the way to go. Gonna give the Democrats all my dough. I got my ballot, I'm ready to vote. If the other guy wins, I hope he don't glow. Crazy uncles, I got crazy aunts. I'm pretty nervous. I got ants in my pants. Oh my my, so many signs. I'm 300 miles behind enemy lines. We got a pandemic. It hit us slow. Economy's bad, it's going too slow. Gone are the dreams of a better place. Sanity needs to make its case. Oh, 
hundred miles behind enemy lines So much confusion, can't catch my breath Everywhere I look, there's too much death Don't know what scares me more, to win or to lose No matter what happens, I'm singing the blues There we go. That is Professor Mike Steinell. That is fantastic. That has a kind of like a mariachi band flavor to it, a little salsa. Yeah, Herb Albert, I got Herb yeah. Albert to come over and he helped me out with that. Right. And then uh, he drove me around the neighborhood in a SUV with my mask on. That was absolutely <laughs> fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. We're getting reports that the debate Wednesday between Senator Kamala Harris and Mike Pence will will continue. There, there's going to be a plexiglass separating them, not for COVID-19. Just Pence can't be alone with a woman. Oh, that's uh, right. Without his wife holding his hand or a plexiglass wall separating them. We're doing a debate watch party Wednesday. Are you going to come? I will be there. We had a very fun debate watch party last tuesday people showed up in the zoom room we made jokes and then we went live on youtube for insight and analysis recording my podcast it was a lot of fun i I, so we're going to do it this wednesday night if you would like an invitation go to davidfeldmanshow.com hit the attend a live taping and we will send you a link to the zoom room and you can come in and if you can't get into the Zoom room, we had some problems with the debate watch party. Some people couldn't get in. I got kicked off. You got kicked off. I'm sorry. You could watch it on YouTube. I apologize. We have to pay. I was for- incensed. I was. I, How'd you no, get kicked I, off? Were you misbehaving? I don't know. It just said it just it just uh, I was in the meeting and it just said you're it just stopped. Hmm. And then I joined it again as um, a different person. I have these different personalities I, that I, I use. Hey, by the way, those 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 steroid, um, you know, those by the the the, the um, what do you call them? <laughs> the things that uh, happen that you you know the steroid things. Uh, like one was mania. One oh, was oh, the, uh, the 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 side the effects. effects. Gosh, yes, dang. Side effects. Yeah. Uh, mania, uh, 
uh, grandeur, you know. Uh, delusions of grandeur, delusions paranoia. Of, he doesn't need the drugs for that. <laughs> what are they thinking about? <laughs> Take him off, though. She's yeah. got plenty of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you next week. I will. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. Great job, as always. He's a miracle. Well, we're waiting on Mark Breslin. He's the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. While we're waiting, I see some people have raised their hand in the studio audience. If you would like to sit in the studio audience here at the David Feldman Show, hit attend a live taping over at the David Feldman Show website and I'll send you a link. There's Mark Breslin. He's just strapping in. Let's take a quick question from Priscilla. Hi, Priscilla. Priscilla? No, sorry, my hand was up for no reason. My apologies. Great. I want to do an entire episode, Mark, of people raising their hand, and then I call on them, and they say, oh, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have raised my hand. Joining us in Toronto, Canada, is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. And he has an order of Canada. He is Canadian royalty, and he joins us today from his home. You David, how, David, how are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm doing okay. I was kind of, you know, anxious and nervous, but then I see you and... Dan Frankenberger and you have to be around people. That's why Trump is going home. He, you know, he doesn't want to be isolated. Yes, by the way, the news did get to Canada that uh, uh, the president uh, was taken to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I just want to send my sincerest sympathies to that hospital. <laughs> he visited the soldiers while he was. Yes, there. didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Are we supposed we're supposed to pray, right? No, no, no. It's enough to turn you into an atheist. <laughs> if you weren't an atheist before, you're an atheist now. Right. Well, you know, here in the United States, we don't wish bad on our leaders. But you're Very free to say that. you're free to say whatever you want. He's not your leader. No, I mean, listen, die in a ditch. I could care less. Um, but no, really, I, I, I don't wish it's bad karma to wish death on anybody. Um, but, you know, you just want this to tip the election finally and the other way in the big in the belief that if you can't take care of yourself, how can you take care of your country? Right. It's just that simple. Yeah. And I hope it does. But I don't know if this sort of thing does make a difference to anybody. Right. I don't know if anything makes a difference to anybody. You know, I looked I look at the polls. I love looking at the polls and the numbers are the same pretty much in the last nine months. Mm. He's Biden's ahead by eight points and then Biden's ahead by eight points. It hasn't really tipped that much. Yeah, but usually it tightens up around this time. Usually it does, but so far it's not. So but that's a good sign. That's a good sign. And yeah, let's see what happens. Yeah, I'm looking at. So, how, so what's going on? What are we talking about today? What what wonderful, upbeat thing are we going to talk about today? Well, in Florida, Biden's up two points. Pennsylvania is okay. up six points. These are the real clear politics averages. Yes, yes. I Mi- look at that every day. Michigan, Biden's up by five points. Wisconsin, 
six points. Biden's leading in Wisconsin by six points. North Carolina. You know, Obama, I think, won that in 2008, but nobody's no Democrat has won North Carolina since. I know that um, I know that uh, Biden's ahead in North Carolina, but I'm going to give it to Trump. Do you know why? Why? You ever been to North Carolina? It's beautiful. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. I don't know. I never have. I just have this image. They're 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 almost. They have some beautiful parts of North Carolina. How I have the wrong image of North Carolina. My image is there's some guy playing a fiddle and he's got his naked daughter on his lap. That's 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 my. That's what I meant. They have nice. There are nice things going on. Okay, all right. How are the comedy clubs? in Canada. We're still going. I mean, we had, um, you know, it's, it's, we're restricted to the number of people we can, we can bring in. And then of course people are terrified of going inside a lot of people, but we still sold out all our shows at all seven locations that we have open on Saturday night. We're only open on Saturday nights in most clubs in Ottawa. We're open seven nights a week. Um, and sometimes we have three people and sometimes it's full. It's hard to say, but, uh, because that one's been open longer than anywhere else, but we're starting to add shows slowly, but in Toronto, they may, uh, the numbers have gone up. The COVID numbers have gone up. They may close everything down right. for, uh, for a month where we're just taking everything day to, day by day. Would you eat on the sidewalk? I walk by people having these, uh, the, the food smells great. Maskless on the literally on the sidewalks of Manhattan, their plate is just, you know, virus viruses just wafting over your oysters. Would you? Hey, eat? listen. Even before COVID, I always questioned the issue of eating on a patio that's next to um, a street where cars are going back and forth. Mm, nice dust crepe. Mm, <laughs> delicious. So I've never quite, I'll have a topping of carbon monoxide on that. <laughs> no problem. I can get it right here. So I, I've always thought that that was a bit of an oddity anyway. Uh-huh. Um, would I eat on the street? No. What am I? Come on. Um, a New Yorker? Give me a break. No, but I would eat on a patio and I have eaten on a patio but i try to go, uh, eat on patios that are behind the um the restaurant rather than in front of the restaurant yeah in new york yeah. there, there's so many homeless people it, it it's almost like you're taunting i feel guilty enough that i'm eating with all these homeless people but then to be eating and they're to see somebody right in front of you uh, well you have to treat them as cats <laughs> And drop, you know, you're eating chicken, drop a little piece of chicken for the homeless person. You're eating some meat, drop some meat. They're not so good on vegetables, I've noticed, because they have no teeth left, uh, which is a sure sign of that. But uh, I find that what's cruel is to sit and eat in front of them and not give them something. Mm. What would be best in the best of the best of all possible worlds is to invite them to join you. Exactly. But nobody does that. No. No. I don't think anybody has ever said when a guy says, hey, buddy, I need some money, I'm starving. Oh, I'm about to go for dinner. Why don't you join me and we'll talk? We'll compare lives. Nobody ever says that. But you don't have a homeless problem the way we do. We certainly have a homeless problem. But not, I can't imagine Canadians. Yes. In, the, only, in big cities, mostly. I mean, it's it's not good in Toronto. It's It's bad in Vancouver. I'm not sure about other cities. I think I've heard it's bad in Montreal, but... 
they're homeless, but they, they beg in French. So I really don't know if they're actually begging or they're just asking directions. I, I just can't tell. I'm sorry. But um, but we do have a homeless problem here. Uh, you know, David, you you have this image that we're some perfect society. We're not. It's just that the problems are much smaller than yours. Right. But yes, we have we have homeless people here. But nothing like I saw once when I was in San Francisco and I saw like an army. It was like an army of people all walking down to, I guess, Market Street or around in that area um, at dusk. And it was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. I've also seen the same thing in Santa Monica where, you know, everybody's bringing their sleeping bags to the beach. And I'm not talking about 10 or 50 people. I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of people, like a caravan of people who have nothing. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. You would yeah. think you would think Nancy Pelosi's city could come up with a solution. But I guess a lot of homeless people gravitate to San Francisco because of the climate. That's why there's so many homeless people in Los Angeles, not because of mismanagement. A lot of judges put vagrants, that's what they're called, on buses and send them to California. And the people, and they, from what I understand, in most places in California, they won't put them on buses and send them back. Um, that the Santa Monica has a very liberal, tolerant policy of homeless pe- uh, of homeless people, and the same with San Francisco. So, um, look, the, the idea the idea would be to obviously house them, but many of them are. And I've gotten to know um, some of the homeless people on my sort of on my track, right? I mean, I know them by name. They used to be uh, your tenants in that apartment building you owned. Well, they used to be a roommate. It's actually what happened. They didn't freaking pay their rent. So what could I do? So um, the um, I've gotten to know some of these homeless people. And that's something we don't do. We They're just homeless people. But right. to me, at best, they're Bob, it's Bob and Nancy. And I've gotten to know a bit of their stories. And some of them are kind of scary because they're not that far from you or me, really. Right. They've right. had things. Right. They've had a life. And through, you know, horrible circumstances, they've lost those things. And they don't have a social net. They don't have a family to prop them up when they need it. Um, but many of them are, are uh, mentally ill and don't want to go to the shelters, resist that. They prefer the independence of, of, of actually being on the street. They think they're safer on the street, in fact, than they are in the shelters. The shelters can be very violent places. So, right. you know, that's not always the answer. The Washington Post reported this weekend that with winter fast approaching, nearly 179 million Americans could have their power and water turned off. They can't pay their utility bills. So they're not homeless, but they don't have water or electricity, heat for the winter. See, I I don't think I don't think that would happen in Canada. Yeah, I just don't think that would happen in Canada. Yeah, but, 20, um, 21 states in the District of Columbia have bans in place that forbid utility companies from shutting off your power and water when you can't pay your bills. Right. I think I think that's the law in Canada as well. Yeah. Everywhere. That's 21 states. So yeah, well, then it sounds like you got what? 29 to go. Yeah. yeah. Although, you know, in Hawaii probably doesn't mean anything anyway. What do you need power for? It's paradise. I've never been to Hawaii. I lived there for six months. After the Joan River show uh, fell apart and uh, the I was producing the Anyone Can Host period, um, 
they changed it to something else and they gave me a big check to just go away and I was burnt out. So I moved to Hawaii, I moved to Maui and lived there for six months. It sounds great, but no one's ever read a book there. There are no bookstores in Hawaii. That tells you a lot. And um, it's no career move. Um, everybody's drunk by noon. Um, and it's sort of, and it's beautiful. But um, now Maui is the is a more private island. No, no. Maui is a big tourist island. Oh, what, what's the what, what's the island you go to to be left alone? Manhattan. No, what what is no, the, that's no that's Jeffrey Epstein's island, <laughs> and that's not. And you're as alone as you want to be. Let's just put it that way. Um, there's four main islands in in um, in Hawaii. Uh, I think the one you're talking about is Lanai, um, which I think is owned by the Dole uh, family, and is it's basically a pineapple plantation. But I think there's some hotels on it as well. Um, that's that's really getting away from everything except from Dole, but um, and Bob Dole. But uh, it's uh, Maui's kind of the big tourist island, and then there's. Uh, um, Kauai, that's sort of the newer, hipper version of Maui. The great thing about Maui is that Maui has um, four distinct ecological climate zones. So there's a desert, and there's a rainforest, and then there's a city area, a very urbanized area, and then there's something else. There's like a forest. So it has four very different climate zones, and everything is, you know, 20 minutes away. So it's quite it's quite an interesting place. I loved it. I just got really bored of Do, doing nothing. Yeah, doing nothing. I got bored of that. Was I opened up a club there, you know, for a while. I I wouldn't know. I didn't play it. I would I don't know why. I don't know why I wouldn't bring you out to Maui. Um, I, mean, but I was flying the com- I was flying the comics in from Toronto and from Vancouver and like believe me I was a very popular guy that that season. The club only lasted a year, but um, when I, I caused a scandal when I opened it up. Because what I did was I did a bit to open up the thing where I, I was in a hula outfit and um, <laughs> I started to do a, I did a hula dance to open it uh-huh. up. Well it turns out that that insulted the gods. Oh boy. And they wanted to throw me in the volcano. And I had to actually write a written apology to whoever the the big kahuna was there. And when I say big kahuna, I mean literally the big kahuna. Right, <laughs> right. right, right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I had to make an apology and they printed it in the Maui News. And But it was it was a rough start to, uh, to the to the. You should have called me because I used to be married to Don Ho's sister. No, you were married to. I won't do the Ho joke. Okay, I will. No. Okay, go ahead. No, I won't do it either. <laughs> I won't do the Don Ho joke. She was a hoe. You're right. Um, <laughs> many of the many of the people, all the people in her family were hoes. In fact, yeah, the whole, uh, yeah. I know the whole family. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see him perform? I understand. No. 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 I have never seen him perform. He would. He would perform. He would never turn down a gig. Oh, he would go anywhere. If the money was right, he was Don Ho, a real Ho. So he was appropriately named, you're saying? Yeah, that's what right? I'm saying. Some people are appropriately named. Right. And I, I yeah. think three people. No, I, I saw Bob. Bob. What? Sorry? I, I think you're freezing. You, you glitched. You glitched. Okay. Okay. It was me. I glitched. Sorry. You glitched. 
Are you going to take a vacation for Christmas? You always take vacations. You're good at that. No, we're not getting on a plane. We're not going anywhere. In fact, um, we usually go to Nassau, but the place that we have a timeshare has closed down um, for this foreseeable future. I, I, as a matter of fact, thanks for reminding me. I have to put that back on on sale to, uh, uh, at, for the condo thing, timeshare thing that you do and then you get another week somewhere else some other time but right now we're not even sure we would go to palm springs in march which we usually do as well um we're hunkering down the best we can do is i think we're going to ottawa for two days we're driving we're staying in a hotel um that's uh, really you know will, will really be good uh that we're not afraid of but i don't know what we'll be able to do they may shut down the restaurants we're hearing they're shutting down the restaurants well who wants to go somewhere and not have to eat in the room Right. They say half the restaurants in New York City are uh, going to go out of business. Yeah, I believe that. I, yeah, I, I don't. believe that. I mean, it's not much better in Toronto. I, I figure they're all money laundering operations, so they're going to be fine. They're not money laundering operations. It's everybody's, it's every man's dream. Men have two dreams. One is twins, and the other one is <laughs> I'm going to own my own restaurant. It's a right. real dream that people have and so many people lose whatever savings they have opening up a restaurant only to find that it's idiotically competitive that the profit margins are minimal and that they have to get up at five in the morning to go to the green grocer and the uh and the fish market to possibly have enough food to feed people who come in and then only order you know an appetizer so it's a terrible business to be in but it's everybody's dream i can honestly say it was never my dream why do you think it's every man's dream? I think it says something about alienation from most jobs. If you own a restaurant, it's real work. You come home at the end of the day exhausted. That's what people crave. And we don't get that anymore, do we? No, I mean, it's not blue collar people who dream this. It's white collar people who dream this. They want to leave their cubicle and open up a restaurant. Yeah. So um, there used to be a poem that a friend of mine wrote where he has a, a line that goes at five o'clock, he leaves work to go home to the factory. <laughs> Are you going to be on our vice presidential debate watch show? Oh, uh, are you inviting me? I'm inviting you. Okay. Good chance. Yeah. That's Wednesday Good. night, right? It's Wednesday night. Yeah. The doors open at eight thirty, and then at nine, we'll all watch it together. Yeah, again, I, I usually watch that with my family, and I try to get Jackson to watch these things. Even he goes, Dad, debates, these are boring. I said, I know, but you'll want to have been able to know you were there. 20 years from now, you'll be able to remember this. So we all do it as a family, and I'm happy to come on afterwards. We do office hours on Friday night, and we talk to people all over the world, people in Belgium, Canada. This election has the world spooked. And I sometimes wonder if you guys are more frightened than we are. I know people are depressed, but how frightened are your Canadian peers about this election? I wouldn't use the word frightened exactly because it isn't our election. Uh, it's your election. And although there's an old saying about when America uh, when America coughs, Canada sneezes. Um, so what you do does somehow drift over the border in some ways. And we're not but wearing a really, mask. Sorry? We're not wearing a mask either. You're not, yeah, right. Well, that'll do it. Um, so uh, 
you know, we're, we just keep feeling pity for you. It's a wonderful feeling. Um, after so many years of, uh, you know, Americans um, acting so superior, it's just such a thrill to be able to pity you. I like pity. Pity's a good emotion. You know that? It's very I underrated. I wouldn't feel sorry for America. You wouldn't? No. Why not? I, th- we're, I mean, I think we're responsible for a lot of pain and suffering around the world. Yeah, I know, but there's uh, there's justice and there's karma, and you can't confuse the two. Okay. I mean, we're responsible for 50 million refugees from the war on terror. Yeah, I know, but, you know, 50 million, is that 50 million American, that 50 million Canadian? I mean, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> there's... You know, I honestly had an argument once with a guy who was German who told me, under no circumstances, and he meant this seriously, he said, under no circumstances did the Nazis exterminate six million Jews. He said, four million tops. <laughs> As if that changed anything. Right. Six million. That's Four million tops. Tops. It could have been three and a half. When you if they when you do six million, you're just exterminating for the sake of extermination. Yeah, it's, just, it's like overkill. It's yeah. kind of like Bill Gates's money. Mm-hmm. Like after you have a certain amount, you don't need any more. Right. You made your point at about three, <laughs> right? Just to be safe, do three three and a half. The Germans do truth and reconciliation. The Canadians yes. do truth and reconciliation with your indigenous population. Yes. Eugene Levy's son is now going to study right. the history of Canada's indigenous population. Something, the history of your treatment of the indigenous population is as shameful as ours. At least it's being addressed, isn't it? Not yes. here. Yeah, you don't hear much because there's there's the overcoating of the issue with uh, with black people. There's more of them. Um, it's a more obvious um, you know thing that, that that has been done to them. Um, and because we don't have quite that history here, um, the history is of, of abuse is really uh, the history of of indigenous peoples. And you know you can't go to a public event anymore without um, the person coming out and going. We just want to say that uh, we want to acknowledge that this uh, gathering is being held on the lands of the, and then they mentioned three unpronounceable um, native uh, groups and tribes that were originally there. And uh, that happens at every, that happens at Toronto Film Festival, happens at Jewish Film Festival, happens at uh, uh, Symphony, happens everywhere now. I had to make a speech uh, recently where instead of saying quite that, I said that we should be very um, aware that we're holding this meeting on the land of the Pritikin family, who is the mortgage holder of this building, (laughs) which I thought was actually closer to the truth. (laughs) You don't have to dig back 200 or 300 years to find, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to find evidence of, of, of injustice. Is there going to be a guaranteed income in Canada? Well, you know, the uh, next week, people who are out of a job um, and don't ha- and don't have unemployment insurance that they paid into because they don't they kind of work for themselves. It's a gig economy. Most of the kinds of people that you and I would know um, now for a full year can apply. Uh, and it's very easy to get for $500 a week for a year. So what does that come to? 
that's two thousand uh-huh. a month. Yeah, so that would be four thousand dollars, and you don't have to pay taxes on it as long as you don't make thirty-eight thousand dollars. You get another fourteen thousand dollars on top of that before you have to pay any tax. That's very close to a guaranteed income. And I'm not calling it that because that's a bit scary um, for people. That's a big leap for people to make, but but it's it is that. What does that do to Canadians in terms of? I guess the Republicans were against giving $600 a week in unemployment insurance here in the United States because they said it will make Americans lazy, unproductive. They won't want to get off their ass and work. Is that talked about in Canada that if we... Yeah, we have a conservative party, and I guarantee if the conservative party were in in power, this would not have happened. Um, There would be other things, but it would be much smaller. It would be more restrictive. Um, this is uh, basically you, you get it whether no matter what if you want to sit on your ass I guess you could but I don't think that I don't think you can get that much for $38,000 a year that's hard to live on um, that is really just a basic kind of income right, right. Uh, and most of the people I know who are getting this and I don't know everybody but most of the people I know who are getting this money would really prefer to work if there were work they right. only want more work Right. they want their jobs back yeah Work, without work, at least in the United States, if you're not working, you're left alone with your own thoughts. And Americans don't do well thinking. We get terrified. Well, they don't. It's not an inward looking. You're not an inward looking people. No. Um, so, um, yeah, that's uh, silence scares Americans. I mean, I don't know how you were raised, but if I told my mother Right now, uh, I'm in love. I'm happy. What are you doing? Well, I, I'm in love. No, no. What are you doing? All that mattered was how are you doing in school? Are you working? Are you? But I'm in love. Yeah, of course, I'm in love, mother. She yeah, wouldn't no, care. No, I don't know whether my mother would care or not care. Uh, it's hard to say, but uh, you know, it was always, you know, I was always brought up um, with. Um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, un- yeah, I was always brought up with what I'll call conditional love. Yeah. I had enormous amounts of conditional love. As long as I was doing well in school, as long as I had a business that was going well, um, boy, oh boy, was I loved. But if things started to turn sour, and in different parts of my life they certainly did, um, I was just an embarrassment. So I, I wanted to change the cycle of abuse. So my kids have grown up with unconditional hate. Smart. That's what I'm excellent. No matter what, I I hate them. Unconditional love. It doesn't come naturally to certain types of people. But I you give your son unconditional love. don't you? Yes, he has unconditional love for me and for me. And maybe that's going to uh, to hurt him in the end. I don't because he's so. so depends. He's so used to a certain level of of love for me that he's just not going to find that in the rest of the world. Everybody will want him to be effective. And everybody will want him to be, uh, you know, uh, good at what he does, as if that really matters. I disagree. I I, I disagree. I used to worry about that, about your son as well, that he was loved too much. I think that you don't have to toughen up your kids. The world toughens them up without you. What gives them armor is knowing that they were loved. And a lot of people, a lot of people He's leaving Walter Reed tonight. A lot of people 
did not grow up with love. I mean, Fred Trump did not love Donald. And yeah, Donald I does believe, not love Eric. Yeah, or I, I believe that too. But then again, I look at most of them uh, of the uh, friends that I grew up with, and I can't say that their fathers were very good at expressing love for them. Uh, most of my friends' fathers were uh, not mothers, but most of my friends' fathers were remote um, and distant, and did not really believe it was really their job to be too involved. They were kind of a wallet, uh, a friendly wallet. Um, There are exceptions, of course. Uh, My father was kind of an exception, but he was much older and was retired pretty much by the time I was born. So he had lots of time for me. Right. But um, but that's that's unusual. That was really unusual. Right. Hey, Don Jr. owns a home with Kimberly Garfoyle. Yeah. Gilfoyle. Gilfoyle. And I remember watching her speech at the RNC this summer thinking, as much as I hate Don Jr., that divorce, he's going to marry this woman and this he, she is going to rip him to shreds. Yes, she's scary. And Jane Mayer over at The New Yorker wrote a piece about why she left Fox. Did you see that piece in The New Yorker? No, I did not see the piece. Oh, my God. They had to pay out $4 million, according to The New Yorker, because Kimberly was sexually harassing the female employees, walking around naked, inviting, you know, pulling a Charlie Rose where her assistants would be brought over to her apartment and she'd, show, she'd open the door naked and ask, you know, how does my body look? That And just, these are well, not- You know what? Now yeah. I don't feel so, so uh, concerned for Don Jr. Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I don't know. You'll be paying for it, but it sounds like fun in the meanwhile. I th- no, I think she's abusive, and I think she has some kind of... I think of she's bisexual. <sighs> yeah. <sighs> That's like red meat. For Don Guys. Jr. Yeah, for Don Jr., yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. Really. Really. All right. Well, Mark Breslin, I will see you, I hope, Wednesday night for the... Vice President, I'm going to try to to call in. I I thank you. I love you unconditionally. You are. I love you unconditionally too. That's why I'm doing this show. Thank you. I will talk to you Wednesday. Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, and we will see you for the debate. Thank you so much, Mark. You're welcome, David. Have a good one. You be well. Go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Surgeon. Go. Capcom. We're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, anything. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Everybody welcome, how we climb. We got him right here, he's on the line. How we climb. How we climb. 
got a good idea who might be a winner. He tell you why he's cooking up a vegan dinner. I'll be glad. I'll be glad. He's oh so smart. He got a lot of brains. He lives in San Diego where it never rains. I'll be glad. We have to change that. I'll be glad. <laughs> What he got to say gonna blow your mind Put your hands together for how we plan How we plan How we plan Let's go to San Diego How we plan Let's go to San Diego, where Howie Klein is standing by. He's the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, and he writes Down with Tyranny. Hello, Howie Klein. And I hang out at the zoo. And you hang out at the zoo. Uh, Professor Mike Steinel wrote that, and he said he'd change it to law. For some reason, he thought you lived in, in San Diego. So, Yes, and it's me. I like it. It's very groovy. It is. He's amazing, Professor Mike Steinel. I was reading Down with Tyranny. You say the, All right. you say the floor has collapsed underneath Donald Trump, that you are looking at a, a, a tsunami on November 3rd. I think I said that all along. Yeah, but it felt good to read it when I did. It just felt good seeing it. How bad, okay. is it? how bad are the poll numbers? You mean how good are they? Well, for Trump, yeah. Good for America. When you say good, they're good for America. They're bad for Trump. That's correct. Right. So um, the poll numbers are pretty bad. When you, when you look at, you know, I was writing about uh, Minnesota today and, 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 New, and New Mexico. And those two states are two, you know, pretty blue states. They're, you know, they're, it's not to say that they're all blue, but there's no state that's all blue. California has red pockets also, and but Minnesota and uh, and New Hampshire and I'm sorry, well I could say put New Hampshire in there too, but let's just talk about the two, uh, New Mexico and and Minnesota. So, and Trump uh, lost them both last time, but he decided that he that they were going to be uh, swing states this time. And I was thinking, how does that idiot get to decide what's a swing state? They're not swing states at all, but the media. And the prognosticators in, in D.C. went right along with him, and they, they declared uh, Minnesota and, and New Mexico swing states. Well, he's losing by double digits in both of those states. Right. <laughs> there have been like 14 uh, polls in uh, Minnesota since the, uh, since, the, since the beginning of the summer, and he lost every one of them. Uh, who won uh, Minnesota in 2016? Hillary won it, yes. Yeah. Yeah, she, it was a narrow victory, but she was a she was a particularly terrible candidate. I mean, Obama won it uh, handily, and um, Trump will lose it uh, by a huge margin. It's 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 not in swing state uh, territory; it's in landslide territory. And same with New Mexico. You know, he's out of his mind. I mean, he and and the media still just goes right along with him, which shocks me. Right. So Arizona looks like it may go for. It doesn't look like it may go. It looks like it's going to go heavily for Biden and for uh, uh, the the astronaut, uh, Kelly. Right. Right. You write about senior citizens. That Biden is doing really well with senior citizens. You say 71 percent of them vote. 71 percent of senior citizens vote. 
it's the it's always been the largest uh, voting demographic. So even though it's not the largest uh, part of the population, it's the lar- largest part of the voting population. And you know, while there were senior citizens who who were walking around remembering uh, Franklin Roosevelt, like in the '60s, it was a solid Democratic uh, base. And it was part of a Democratic coalition. And then as they started dying off and as the Democratic Party started moving further and further away from everything that FDR was all about and what what got that coalition uh, into such a powerful position, as that started happening, uh, more and more Republican, uh, more and more older people, older voters started migrating to the Republican Party. Right. And now they they are um, horrified by Trump as, as, a, as a cohort. They uh, they don't like the way he behaves. They're not particularly crazy about Republican policies and and his policies particularly. And they are now a uh, they're they're going to be a main mainstay of the uh, the Trump uh, tsunami. And what does that what does that mean Trump. for Florida? It's good news for Florida. Florida has a lot, a lot of older people. Florida, uh, the polling is good. You know, Florida is a 50-50 state. It's the most 50-50 of all the states. And, you know, to, to be ahead by two or three points, that's, that's a big, that's big news in Florida. Florida is not about, is not a state really that's about persuasion as much as it is a state about getting out your base. If the Democrats manage to get out their base, they uh, they'll win this thing. The problem that in in Florida, you know, Florida uh, Blue America did a big Florida thing this week. We're we're doing a uh, we're trying to raise money for candidates up and down the ballot who are running in Florida. And the, the, the thought behind that is is simple: if someone is running for state house, for state senate, for Congress, if they're running in these down ballot. Um, races, they're going to really concentrate on getting people out to vote. And you would imagine if they're going to be voting for uh, these Democratic candidates running in these uh, in these small House districts and small congressional districts, they're, going to vote, they're not just going to vote for, for that Democrat, they're going to vote against Trump as well. So Blue America made a, a pitch uh, to, to people to donate not so much to Biden. He doesn't need the money. Uh, I don't. I mean, I'm sure he thinks he does, but these, these candidates do. These are and these many of these races. When when we started this project, were races that the Democratic Party just would not even look at. Is this ninety for ninety with Dr. Fergie Reed. That's right. He he was part of it, and also we've had Janelle on here from the um, the, the Florida State Democratic uh, uh, Environmental Caucus, right. and the two of them led this led this effort to recruit candidates in every district. So the whole idea was, you know, even even in even in a heavily Republican district where you have a Democrat out there giving the ideas and explaining to people what the Green New Deal was re- is really about and what Medicare for All really stands for and uh, other issues that are important to Democrats, it, they may not win themselves, but they're going to turn out more voters in, in Florida. And that, and in, in, a, in a state where sometimes there's just a tiny handful of voters that decide the election, uh, or, or you know, a tiny handful of voters that are 
uh, make the difference between the winner and the loser. It, it makes sense to do that. And, and there, we could not get the Florida and still have not gotten the Florida Democratic Party to understand that. They, they have been uh, very, very, uh, un- I mean, not only have they been non-cooperative, they've, they've tried to sabotage these candidates. They've tried to uh, bully some of the women into dropping out of the races uh, to let their favorite Republicans get elected. Um, they are, this is one of the most incompetent and corrupt political parties I've ever come across in my life, the Florida Democratic Party. Just unbelievable. But now it looks like some of our candidates are going to win. It seems like Gary Farmer, who, who is, will be the minority leader, that's his plan, is to be the minority leader. And Florida needs to, fl- to flip, Florida Democrats need to flip three state Senate seats, and then they'll have a place at the table when the new districts are redrawn. But Gary Farmer, the guy who's the head of the Democratic senators, um, doesn't want to be the majority leader. He is only, they're only chasing two seats, not, not, and, and there's another seat that could win the Democrat could win, and if they would flip the, uh, or they would tie. So they would have a seat at the table. They would tie the Senate. It's amazing to me. I mean, it's like political malpractice that this guy isn't going for this seat. The seat, um, it, by the way, it, it was almost won by this woman last time, Kathy Lewis. She came very, very close to winning it, and she was running against an incumbent. Well, the incumbent is gone, so now it's an open seat. She can certainly, she's certainly going to get really, really close no matter what. But if, the, if Gary Farmer allowed the Democratic Party to back her, she would win this seat in a, in a walk. It's just shocking to me how incompetent and venal this party is. So well, I was on a, a little bit of a no, change it's, there. It, it, it's looking like it may be too big to steal for, for Trump. In that's right. I, I believe so as well. North? And, that, and that's what everyone needed. Too big to steal. Let's look at North Carolina. Cunningham versus Tillis. Is it Tillis? Who tested? Tillis. He, he tested. Yeah. Go ahead. They're both terrible. They're, they're both horrible candidates. It's, it's, it's just a matter of uh, lesser of two evils candidate. And, you know, every, you know, it looked like it looked bad for, uh, well, Phyllis has, uh, you know, has, has COVID now, but, he, but that, that, you know, that's not a reason to vote for or against somebody uh, if he, if he lives, uh, which he probably will. But he's, uh, he's just been a terrible, um, state legislator first, and then a terrible, uh, member of, con- of, of the of Congress of the, in the Senate. He's horrible. He's just a, a Trump lackey. He doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't ever stand up to Trump on anything. He, and he's really bad. Cunningham is terrible as well. He's just a hackish, uh, conservative Democrat. He just got outed on, I don't know what it was, sexting or something like that. He, you know, I mean, and, and fortunately, it looks like the voters don't care. The voters are saying basically they want Trump out, and they want the Trump enablers out as well. So it looks like Cunningham, as bad as he is as a candidate, better than, better than Tillis, but still terrible. Uh, looks like he's going to win, and the Democrats will both take the electoral votes of North Carolina and a Senate seat. Not since Obama's and a couple of outbeats, by the way. Right. This was not since Obama's first run have the Democrats won North Carolina, correct? 
North Carolina has has been uh, trending uh, towards the Democrats, but uh, the Democrats made a big boo-boo uh, by uh, um, nominating a terrible candidate in uh, 2016, and uh, and Trump uh, took the state handily. Susan Collins in Maine. Gideon? Yeah, I think yes, Sarah Gideon is going to win that one as well. Uh, you know, she's... She, you know, Cunningham is the, the, who, the guy we were just talking about in North Carolina. He's a conservative. Gideon is she's an establishment character, but she's more like a moderate. She, she's very, very much like Susan Collins, but a Democratic version of Susan Susan Collins. Uh, my, my worry yeah. with the, all of these people that, that you're mentioning is that they, they and the uh, Democrats in the House who are being elected now. And the uh, and Biden are going to be so adverse to risk and so unwilling to do anything that people are hoping is going to happen now. You know, it's just going to be about back to normal. Everybody's saying no one is tweeting a bunch of stuff and they're not going to pass any kind of legislation that's going to be helpful to people. And, and yet the Democrats are going to control the Senate. They're going to overwhelmingly control the House. They're going to control the White House and they're going to deliver nothing. And 2022 is just going to be absolutely catastrophic. But isn't Trump a fascist? I mean, you write over down with Jeremy yes. that just- he deserves COVID-19, that he is a threat he is truly a threat to this country. Should we? Uh, that's thinking? my belief. Yeah. Uh, you know, most of the people who I, t- in fact, I, I did a poll this, um, today of, of my Twitter followers. And the last time I looked at it, only a third of them agreed with me that, uh, that, you know, I asked you, do you, do you hope Trump dies? That was the question, which I do. Um, and about a third of the, of the We're people talking about who, pra- You're just talking about praying. That's just in case anybody's listening, how he is just praying. Well, not even praying. I mean, hoping. Hoping, but not. you're not going to act on this. No, no, I'm a nonviolent guy. I'm not right. going to kill anybody. Right. Um, and I don't expect anyone of my Twitter followers is, is going to kill anybody either. And I'm not asking them to. <laughs> I don't right. expect them to. I'm not just saying that for the sake of not being visited by the Secret Service. I'm saying it because that's what I believe. Right. So anyway, I yes, I hope. The Secret Service has had it with Trump. Apparently. Well, yes, I, I, I believe so as well. But, yes. By the way, did, to get a little insight into that, did you watch uh, that uh, Comey rule? The Comey no, rule. Uh, little- you, re- you gave it rave reviews over at Down with Tyranny. I, I want to... I want to watch it. It looks great. You don't have to watch the first episode unless you want to. I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching it. The first episode just sets up the second episode. But by someone like you or someone like any of our listeners, although maybe not our listeners in England or something or other countries, but any of our American listeners, they already know everything in in the first episode. It's not necessary. There's nothing wrong with the first episode. It's just an hour out of your life. But um, the second episode is unbelievable. It, it really shows who Donald Trump is. So you may be thinking, oh, I know who Donald Trump is. You do. But in everything, this guy, uh, what's the name of the Gleason, filmmaker? I Billy? think it's Brendan Gleason. Is that his name? Brendan Gleason was the actor who played Trump. Yeah. But uh, I think it was Billy Ray is the, uh, is the wrote it and is the uh, director. 
and he did a great job. He, you know, I'm not a huge fan of his because uh, he, he's, he's all about conservative Democrats. He raises a lot of money, but not for progressives, just for conservative Democrats. I don't like him. But he does, uh, in terms of this film that he made, he did, I think he did a great job. Gleason, they made Gleason so so ugly. I mean, Gleason's not an ugly guy, but they made him so ugly and, and twisted looking that he, what they did is by showing what he, showing how ugly Trump is on the outside, they were trying to paint a picture of what he looks like on the inside. And really, um, the idea, I think, of both the actor and the director was to uh, portray Trump as a mafia don. And, and they succeeded in doing that really, really well. So we all know Trump, and this isn't, this isn't a news, there's no news in there. He's not breaking any stories, but it's still a very, very powerful way of telling the story of who Donald Trump is and why people in the government hate him so much. Now, you brought up the Secret Service, and yeah, I mean, there are members of the Secret Service who went to the media uh, off the record and talked about how Trump doesn't care about them, doesn't, that, you know, they're just pawns in his little game. He doesn't care if they die <clears throat> by doing that little uh, drive around mm-hmm. to wave at Proud Boys on, uh, this weekend. He put a lot of lives in jeopardy. Uh, and there were Secret Service guys who were locked in a car with that imbecile. And, uh, you know, some of them are going to uh, They get, are getting uh, sick right now. The Secret Service is reportedly coming down with COVID-19 and they're bringing it home to their families. That's right. And Trump doesn't care. So you know, you know the story about these two guys. I can't remember their first names. They are, you know, very difficult first names. But they're both, the last name is both Singh. Uh, they were Sikhs. Every Sikh is his name Singh. And um, they they were they were both like the uh, the Indian equivalent of the Secret Service, and they were tasked with uh, being bodyguards for Indira Gandhi. And I think it was 1984. They shot her. Right. That's not going to happen. I'm not urging that anyone do it, but they would be heroes of the United States forever and for all eternity if they did that. Well, we we don't talk about those kind of things here, but he is. Well, so you're worried about 2022. To me, it's like Apollo 13. Let's, you know, before we worry about Apollo 14, let's get the spacecraft home. We do. Yeah, well, that's what Ted Luz keeps telling me. I mean, I, 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 you know, we had a talk about this the other day, and I was telling him my theory of 2022, and he didn't disagree with me necessarily, but he said, let's worry about 2021. But I, in 2020, before we worry about 2022, and a lot of people think that way, but I don't agree. I mean, the, the DCCC is electing just the most horrible cast of characters, as as is the uh, as is the DSCC uh, Schumer's operation, they are doing everything they can to to make sure there are very few progressive uh, progressives elected. They're electing blue dogs and new Dems, and I'm telling you, you know, in, it's just two years from now, the Republicans are going to sweep Congress. Uh, you know, these people should listen to me. No, I know better than they do. They're not thinking beyond right now. That's all they're thinking of is right now. And, uh, and, and they are going to kill the Democrats' chance of getting anything done. In the, it, you know, Biden will be able to get something done in the first term. Hopefully it's not going to be to kill Social Security. And that'll be it. He'll get one thing done, 
and um, and then the second term will get nothing done because the Republicans are going to control Congress. Well, we've talked about accelerationism on this show. There are some people who are not voting for Biden because they want they want they think that if things get so bad, the American people will wake up and elect a leftist, a socialist. Oh, that, that's such an idiotic. I agree. I agree. That I don't even want to talk about it. There are good reasons to not vote for Joe Biden. That is not one of them. Right. And that, so my question to you is, is it conceivable that accelerationism will work within the Democratic Party, that things starting on January 21st, 2021, will be so bad, just undeniably bad, that Biden will be forced to say yes to Medicare for all, that they, that he's going to have to do something about well, He won't be able to do anything about Medicare for all. He's going to have a, a Republican Congress. And, and anyway, your premise, I don't agree with. What do you mean he's going to have a Republican Congress? You mean he's going to have Democrats who are Republicans? No. In 2022. No, I'm talking about I'm talking about, I'm talking about in January. No, no, no. Their thing is we won. We don't have to pay any attention to these damn progressives. They hate progressives. They hate everything that progressives stand for. They hate them. They like Republicans more than they like progressives. People like Biden. People like Schumer. And you don't see any chance that Jamal Bowman and AOC and Pramila Jayapal and the, and the squad have enough influence to create some kind of... You know, they'll they'll have some and they'll be pushing and they're, they're hardworking and they'll do what they can and they'll be. But mostly they're going to be talking to us. They're not going to get anywhere with Biden. They're not going to get anywhere with Schumer. They're not going to even get anywhere with Pelosi. They're not going to get anywhere. Uh, I, I wish I was wrong, but they will be talking to us, the people. And um, hopefully. Uh, we'll have a, a better leader, better leadership in the progressive movement. I, I imagine that that's going to happen, and uh, and and smarter leadership, and that pays attention. The problem with with progressives in Congress is that they're so into policy first and foremost that they tend to not pay a lot of attention to power. So so they don't really go after power. They're too busy with with a policy. And, and it, you know, it's hard to criticize somebody for that because that's what you, you want them to do is to be into policy. But, you know, without the power, policy doesn't do a lot of good. It does some good, but, but not enough good. And that's that's the, the problem that we find ourselves in right now. How frightened are you at this point of Trump? Nothing. I'm sorry. Nothing frightens me. How frightened are you of Trump getting back to the White House and feeling better, showing up at the debate and stealing the election. How conceivable is that right now? Um, I don't I don't see that happen. First of all, Trump is ill and uh, his doctor even said, you know, well, well, if he, you know, basically said, <laughs> if he survives Friday, he'll we'll be we'll be out of the uh, out of the danger zone. They I don't want to let. Him. Listen, I I was wrong about COVID nineteen. You had told me back in February this is going to be the biggest 
story of the decade. People you know are going to come down with COVID-19. You better get ready. And I said, you know, America gets lucky. I think we're all overreacting. I was proven wrong. I know you were poo-pooing it. I thought you were joking. I, I, I didn't know what to think of it. And, and now I'm poo-pooing Donald Trump's COVID-19. He'll survive. He'll be fine. He's got... He may survive. We don't know. I, I'm not hearing, uh, you know, the greatest stuff when you, read, when, you, when you read between the lines of what these doctors are saying and what some staffers are saying. Uh, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be Donald Trump. I mean, he's, uh, you know, they have him on, you know, the, the ultimate drug program that people don't normally get. And I was listening to another doctor saying that, you know, some of this stuff is for people who are, you know, desperately ill. Now, maybe they gave it to him because he's the president. I, I don't know. But uh, I have a feeling not. I mean, you know, steroids is a, is a heavy thing, especially heavy dose steroids that they're giving him. And, uh uh, I I am I I I'm not predicting that he's going to die. I mean, I'd like him to, but I'm not predicting. He's, but he's going to be very very sick. He's going to be very sick for for a long time. I don't think so. I just can't imagine that happening. He's got. Well, he's got. You know, maybe had he gotten it five months ago, the way Boris Johnson did, and they didn't know how to treat COVID nineteen, he'd be hooked up to a ventilator. But they now know how to treat this. It's not. They the know how to treat it, but who, who people are dying every day, and who's dying? Fat old white men. But not fat old wealthy white men. I mean, you're going to see that Kellyanne Conway and Kaylee McEnany, they're all going to be fine. They, they, they have I, access. I, 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 would, I agree with you. They are going to be fine. Ke- Kelly and, and Conway and McEnany are going to be fine. But, but I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about uh, the psychotic who's sitting in the Oval Office now. No, I wouldn't, you know, I would much rather, I would bet on those two just being fine. Not, and I, with him, I, I would not uh, make that bet. His blood oxygen levels dip below 95 twice, which suggests serious compromise of lung capacity. Yeah, it, 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 it dipped below 95. So the, first of all, uh, it, it, when they test him. You know, it's not like he's being tested at all times. So it, it dipped below 95 twice. It doesn't, it does, that isn't going to kill you. I mean, that, that is not that serious of a thing. When, you, when you're in the hospital for anything, they, you know, they put that thing on your finger, and that tells you if you're, if you're you know, what your oxygen level is in, mm-hmm. in your blood. And, you know, everybody, everyone has little dips now and then, and, and I don't think that the... Uh, I don't think that the way they measure it is that accurate anyway. So don't so don't count that on that on for killing him. But there are a lot of other things uh, that, that could. Nothing stops okay. this man. Nothing. Nothing is going to stop him. He's got yeah. he's he's got this experimental polyclonal antibody uh, concoction, and they've got him on some the, the steroid. And he's being monitored and he'll be fine. He'll be he'll debate uh, Biden. By the way, you didn't- I don't think so. I, I, I do not think there's going to be there'll be two more debates. I think that, um, you know, Biden said already today 
that um, he is going to take the advice of experts before he makes a decision if, if he's going to uh, debate Trump or not. Well, he could do what uh, Senator Lindsey Graham's opponent did, have a plexiglass divider. And I understand Pence and Kamala are going to have a plexiglass divider. The same room with Trump. Donald, Donald Trump is, uh, what is that? Uh, you know, he's toxic. He's, he's spreading disease wherever he goes. There are now 30 people in the White House who, who are sick because of him. Uh, I wouldn't get in a room with him, and I, I would advise Biden not to as well. I'm advising you, if you hear this, Joe, do not get in a room with that guy. The other thing is that last time uh, Trump talked so much and carried on so much that uh, Biden didn't get a chance to uh, make a fool of himself or to show how uh, unqualified he is. And this time it's possible that Trump will do that again, but it's also possible that someone will talk some sense into Trump and he'll keep his mouth shut and let Biden talk. How did you think it went? You didn't do our post-debate wrap-up. No, I thought it went, um, uh, I thought Trump was as horrible as you would think he would be, but I uh, didn't plan to watch it until the next day, but I did watch it. I, I put it on and I I shut it off in around 20 minutes. I don't know the exact amount of time. And when I thought about it the next day, what made me shut it off? It wasn't Trump. It was Biden. Biden is what made me shut it off. Uh, and when he did get an opportunity to speak and he started talking about uh, his, his health care plan, he, 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 his instincts came out. His conservative, conservative, conservative instincts came out. The plan that, that he had is not Medicare for all, the plan that's on his website, but it's not a bad plan. It, it's, not, it's not a good plan, but it's not a bad plan. And he couldn't even embrace that. Instead, he's, you know, making up nonsense to please who? A bunch of conservatives? I mean, that, that's, who he's gonna be, that's what he's going to be doing for his entire time in the White House, is trying to uh, please conservatives. That's, that's, that's how he grew up. That's how he uh, was the whole time he was in the Senate, for all those decades and decades and decades. He was not looking to please the base. He was looking to please Republicans okay. and independents. Before you go, Jamie Harrison debated Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham begged for, I think he needs $10 million to beat Jamie Harrison. How does Lindsey Graham's chances look? Well, uh, you know, I don't like to bet against uh, uh, Democrats, but if I had to bet, I'd bet on Lindsey Graham. Uh, Jamie, Jamie Harrison and he are basically tied. So again, it's going to turn out, it's going to be about turnout in South Carolina, and the Republicans have a turnout machine, and the Democrats don't really have a turnout machine. They turned out for uh, Biden. What? They turned out for Biden in South Carolina. Not very many. <laughs> I mean, you know, primary isn't the same as a uh, uh, isn't the same as a general election, and basically it was just they have this one gigantic gerrymandered district where, which has tentacles that go into every black neighborhood in the state. And that is the uh, congressional district that's operated by the, the state Democratic boss, Clyburn, Jim Clyburn. Right. And that's who turned out for, for Biden. And uh, the, you're not going to win the general election with that. And not, you're not going to come close to a general election like that. But I think... That, that there are a lot of people who are fed up with um, with Lindsey Graham and, and 
so that keep, that's that's why some of this polling shows that it, it, it's it's kind of tied. It's within the margin of error. Uh, I haven't seen um, Jamie Harrison go above it, but he's he's holding steady. It's like a, at a fifty fifty uh, place right now. He's not a very good candidate either, by the way. Just uh, just so you know, he's a lobbyist. He's a sleazy, corrupt lobbyist. Uh, you know, if he were in, 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 in the Senate, he'll definitely be one of the worst than one of the worst senators. Right. Better than Lindsey Graham. Right. We, we're getting reports that Donald Trump is back home in, right, the, yes. in the Petri dish. We have uh, some people have raised their hands. Do you have a second to answer some questions? Howie? Well, of course I have a second. But what does that really mean? Well, Jeff, you have a question for Howie Klein. You have to unmute yourself. All right. He's not unmuting himself and some hands have gone down. If anybody has a quick question for Howie Klein, raise your hand. There we go. Professor Mary Ann. Oh, actually, uh, Roland's at the door and I've got to jump. Sorry about that. You answer Professor Mary Ann's question. I'll answer Professor. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money for progressives and socialist candidates. Read Down with Tyranny. Thank you, Howie. He already hung up. I'll I'll play the role. Of, I'll play the part of Howie Klein, Professor. Well, Marion. he hightailed it out of there pretty quick. Well, Roland, Roland is there. <laughs> what what is your? Uh, are you going to come no, to? Are you, I, first I, of I all, are you going to do the post vice presidential debate wrap up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that it might be an easier debate to sit through without alcohol. So yes, thank uh, you. I probably will. Um, Good. Thank you. You were great last time. Thank well, you. Well, it was. Look, it made being in the chat room and being with you guys made that whole debacle way more bearable. That is, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what I wanted to ask Howie, there are a lot of questions, but this one uh, maybe wouldn't upset him so much. I wondered if anyone had seen these Amy McGrath commercials she's running against in, Mitch. Against Mitch. Yeah. They're pro-Trump commercials. I mean, she's saying Trump is trying to get a stimulus package out and Mitch is blocking him. You know, Trump has this great COVID plan and Mitch is blocking it. I'm going, what are you what are you doing? What are you doing? Why, why are you? I have no idea who she thinks she's appealing to, because sadly, you know, uh, I think that if. If Charles Booker had gotten his campaign off the ground about a month earlier than he had, he would have beaten her in the primary. And he was polling much better against Mitch McConnell than she is. The Democrats are just pouring tons and tons of money into Amy McGrath's campaign. But these commercials just seem like desperation at this point. Right. At least they're doing that, though. Yeah. Usually they... They have like some unwritten code not to go after the leaders of the opposition party. But it's nice to see. Oh, that. Well, all that is out the uh, out the window this time around uh, for Democrats, I think. I, I think they feel now even the most cowardly Democrats feel safe to like, uh, uh, you know, throw shade at Trump. So it's it's not, it's not surprising. But but the problem is, you know, from what I see it is like. You're doing pro-Trump propaganda, girl, <laughs> that you probably don't have to do. You know, it's uh, that's 
you don't have to mention him badly. I mean, Paul Jean Swergens is running a completely, you know, like pro uh, proactive campaign for, where she's for Medicare for all and for jobs and everything else. She never mentions Trump in her West Virginia campaign. And I don't blame her because if she wins, she will probably be getting a lot of people voting for her that are also voting for Trump. But that's vastly different than actually portraying Trump in a positive light that's utterly false. I mean, Trump has none of these plans that she's claiming Trump has. It's just, you know, it's just very, I guess I've lived to see almost everything in politics, I guess. We all have. So the latest polls show McConnell leading Amy McGrath by 12 points, and that was in early September. Can she make that up? I I mean, the question you have to ask is that they're both known. Uh, I mean, you know, usually somebody can make them up if they're a relative unknown and just becoming more and more known to the the public. And and that certainly was the case with, you know, Charles Booker. Um, But Amy McGrath is just I mean, they there's been no one whom the Democrats have spent more money on this cycle apart from the president in the, in the Senate race than Amy McGrath. And I'm telling people like, Hey, there are other races you should be putting money into. I mean, we have Paula Jean, we have, we have congressional races, uh, Shulton in Iowa fourth and Kara Eastman in Nebraska. And um, there's, there's one other th- there's a couple, there's at least a couple of, I mean, uh, Shahid Buttar, I mean, at least to put a dent into Nancy Pelosi's edifice. Right. But I mean, these are all people that are probably that have a good chance right. and they would be solid, solid progressives. Right. So. Iowa, Joni Ernst is not polling well. She's the incumbent from Iowa. And Teresa Greenfield is leading in all the polls by the average. The real clear averages are five percent. Mm-hmm. That's. And J.D. Shulton, you mentioned earlier, he's going after Steve King's seat. Steve King isn't running this time around. Yeah, and that might, you know, it was kind of, that might be a little bit of an uphill battle for him, but he's much better known now than he was two years ago as a politician. Yeah, I I was a little worried about him because, remember, um, Iron Stash. uh, Randy. Randy, right. Randy Bryce, uh, he was polling very well against a little Eddie Munster there. (laughs) Paul Ryan. Ryan. He does look like Eddie Munster. Yes, he does. That's what I kept calling him, Eddie Munster, with that widow's peak. But the thing is, is that uh, he, he was so disliked in his own district that he would have been beat. By Randy Bryce. But then they got, you know, he left. He, and then they got uh-huh. some other uh, young and not it's non-objectionable young Republican. And then it was to the Republicans there, it was back to normal. And he lost. So, you know, I'm thinking that uh, this time around might be a little difficult, except that that she Schultz's been running such a great campaign in that area. Yeah. And he's I haven't seen any polling, though. I mean, there was some polling where he was within four percent, three percent. He only lost by four points. Right. Um, And in in, uh, Georgia, 
David Perdue, the incumbent, is facing John Ossoff, mm-hmm. and Ossoff is now coming on strong. But we don't like Ossoff, do we? He's a Democrat. Oh, he was one of the lamest Democrats. Yeah. He lost a. Uh, He's the son of a rich father, right? Yeah, yeah. He should have won. Um, you know the problem with, and and I think I brought this up. The problem in many of these states like Iowa and particularly Georgia is that the Republicans are just running amok with the voter suppression, the purging of the voter lists. Iowa, they just won in court, you know, the the Trump or the Republicans just won in court and had, you know, something like over 100,000 mail-in ballots already invalidated. And all of this is going on. It's going on in the drop boxes in, in Pennsylvania. And there was an article I didn't read yet today, but it seems that the, the Republicans all over the country are just hyper aggressive in the courts, you know, going uh, with the, all these voter suppression tactics. And basically, the Democrats' answer to all of that is to get the Green Party thrown off the ballot in three states. Right. I mean, there needs to be just a very hyper aggressive, not only actually being friend of the courts, but publicizing this stuff. You know, it's left to like The Intercept or these lefty outlets to, you know, just report on any of it. Right. Stay so, stay with me for one second. Lynn, you have a question. You're calling from Los Angeles, right? Yeah. West L.A. Right. Uh, it was a, it's an interesting conversation, um, especially when Howie mentioned the focus on policies and not so much on power. I like to focus on power, and I wonder why no one that I'm listening to is talking about the down ballot races in several very key states because redistricting is coming and the republicans totally nailed it in 2010 the last census they captured congress the senate they captured they captured a lot of power by focusing on red mapping and no one in the democratic party is talking about it i've been searching and how he has some lists, like people in um, Wisconsin. He's got some down ballot people in Florida. Uh, well, he talked I about don't... 90 for 90 for exactly. the in Florida. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, but that's not enough. And Florida is probably not going to be one that's, um, you know, that we can t- capture. Um, but I, f- I found a couple websites. I don't know if I can mention it, but... Um, Sister District Project is one, and they focus on down-ballot races, and I'm not too pleased with their candidates. They're not as progressive as I like, but at least they're coming up with some competitive seats. And I found another really good website, and um, let me see if I can tell you what it is. It was uh, everydistrict.com, no, everydistrict.us, and they have um, 11 states that they're targeting, and they're very strategic, and they're similar to Howie. So I recommend that people look into that seriously because time is running out. And the final thing about that is everybody's talking about the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Electoral Count Act that may come into play if people contest their, um, their slate of electors. 
Ted Lou, Rokana, they all tell me, oh, it's going to be settled in the House. The delegations are going to get a vote there. That's not what Tom Hartman says. He says it's going to be the down ballot state legislatures. If you add every every member of the Senate and every state Senate and every member of the state assembly will get to vote. And you can add the two bodies together, so you get a total number of Republicans in both bodies and a number of Democrats in both bodies, and see the difference. And I've looked at that, and there are 30 states that are Republican majority right now, 20 states that are Democratic majority. So according to what Tom Hartman reads and how I read the documents he suggested, it looks to be true if it goes. Well, wait, 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 wait. So let me understand this, because according to the 12th Amendment, if it's a, a if, if there's a tie in the yes. Electoral College, which I've gamed this out, you can do this. And it is conceivable, it's very likely that uh, it can be a tie in the Electoral College. I understood that it goes into the House of Representatives and each state gets one vote, one vote. But you're saying that's not the case. No, I'm saying that is exactly the case. Every state gets one vote. There's a total of 50 votes out there to determine who the president is. And the House of Representatives will be the people who say what their state's vote is going to be. They are not the ones who are going to be doing the voting, however. The people who are doing the voting for each state are in the state houses, the state senate and the state legislature. Look it up. It's the states, the state uh, representatives that will be voting. And as I just said, there are 30 states with a majority of Republican um, houses, Republican dominated houses. They have 30 votes. We have 20. That's how it is right now. However, the vote will be announced or done on January 6th. They already Congress. seat the new Congress on January 6th. They will seat the new Congress on January 3rd. So if you look at the legislatures, like I looked at, for example, Florida, if we could flip 32 seats in Florida, they take office on the day that the election is done. So they can take, you know, they can take office in November. That's really advantageous, but because there are so many seats that we need and it's such a red state, I don't see it happening. It's a dream, but I, I don't see it happening. But um, like, let me see, Georgia. No, I'm not gonna look at Georgia. I'm looking at um, North Carolina, January 1st. It can We can flip that lower um you know the state legislature um and you, we only we only need um 18 seats there and michigan we need they take office january 1st so look at the down ballot races i don't want to take any more of your time okay but yeah i hope i was clear yes you are thank you lynn uh yeah there are uh 36 trifectas right now when it comes to the state governments, uh, 15 states have a trifecta. That means a governor who's a Democrat in both houses. What, what, what is that sound? I thought it was Lynn. Is it Lynn? Let me mute Lynn. Yeah, I think she had a bad connection. 
so the Democrats have 15 trifectas. The Republicans have 21, where they have a Republican governor and both branches of the, uh, the state house are Republican. A landslide could change that, right? Don't you think if people stay home, if they don't want to vote for Trump, that affects the down ballot? Or people just think that, hey, Biden's, you know, this is the uh, this is the problem of getting a little too cocky, you know, that people say, well, Biden's got it. Why do I vote? And uh, and I know this because. I've been out the last few days getting signatures for my run for Park District Commissioner in my pre, in my precinct and a few others around me. And a lot of people are just not enthusiastic about voting. And I'm telling them to vote because, A, we've got a ballot initiative to change the Constitution of, of Illinois to have a progressive tax structure in place. Right. And now, when, when is your campaign? Are you up oh, for my campaign? Uh, my election isn't until, I think, April 4th. I believe that's the first Tuesday in April is the consoli- general consolidated elections all over the state of, uh, of Illinois, which is all the cities and um, townships and all these way down, down ballot places. Right. But I, I should to mention to yeah. people who are new to the show that Professor Marianne Cummings is a physics physics is a physicist and she was a Bernie delegate who heard the call in 2016. Bernie said run and you ran and you got elected to the Aurora, Illinois Parks Commission and you are Mm -hmm. the commish now on our show. That's true. We call you the commish. So your campaign start your your campaign well, you have, to get, you, you have to get um, you have to get signatures. And before I only had to get 25 signatures because no one had run for Parks District Commissioner before in the state of uh, Illinois. Now the requirements are a lot more and we have to get most of these signatures in have to get in by November. So that's why I have to go out while the weather is still nice and get signatures to file to be on the ballot. So uh, they everything has to be in by the first week of December. So that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm trying to get people again. I was doing this four years ago. People not enthusiastic, Democrats not enthusiastic about voting. And I said, look, you don't have to vote for the top of the ticket. if You don't want to. But show up and vote you know, for make Bernie Sanders, the chair of the banking committee, you know, right. vote for, for Tammy Duckworth. Because I figure, you know, just be honest with people. If they don't vote, there's zero chance they vote for the top of the ballot. If they vote, there's some chance that, oh, well, what the hell, flip a coin, might as well. You know, you get them to the polls. <laughs> right. That's the first thing. Well, Donald Trump is back in the Petri dish. There's, there's a photo op of him standing in front of the White House, furiously removing his mask. Make, that's his statement to take. Drama queen. Yeah. He's the biggest drama queen. <laughs> and a new study, this, this says that uh, one third of COVID patients had altered mental states. So maybe 
this will cure him. Maybe it'll alter his brain chemistry and he won't be such an a-hole. Maybe there is a, a silver lining to uh, to all this. Well, thank you so much, Professor Marianne. I see that Dr. Harriet Fraud is Hi, here. Dr. Fraud. Hi. We're all, we've all been, it's been a tough weekend, Dr. Fraud. We've been so worried about the president. When we come back, we will be be joined by Dr. Harriet Fraud. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics a comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. It's on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say, and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say, and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say, and he's coming your way. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. That's Professor Mike Steinel. It doesn't get any better than that, although maybe it does. Joining us is Dr. Harriet Fraud. Hi. Hi. You are the host of When Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. Welcome. I know it's been a very nerve-wracking weekend. Our Mm. commander-in-chief wasn't feeling well, and when (laughs) Daddy's sick, we we all quiver and worry for him and yeah. it was very very scary but he's home and he's safe yeah. now he's safe so we can right re- captain Blonspurs is back in the cell <laughs> good to know yeah yes. maybe they treated the bone spurs at walter reed maybe yeah those in the head i think yeah before but, let me before you uh, talk <laughs> Uh, I want to say to the people who are attending via Zoom, raise your hand. I always hog Dr. Fraud, and I'm not going to do it. So if you would like to talk to Dr. Harriet Fraud, please raise your hand. I will share Dr. Fraud today. People complain that I talk too much to you. So raise your hand. Before we talk about the president, I had asked you to come to the debate watch party 
and diagnose the insanity. <laughs> you said you weren't going to watch the debate. Did you have a chance to see it? I watched some of the highlights or the shit show or whatever you want to right, call it right. later. But I really, I don't have any faith in what they would say, no less what they would say to each other. And as it turned out, it was just a shit show. At first, when Trump was sick, of course, since he always lies, you can never tell if someone's a liar. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know if he was just avoiding the debates he can't do or trying to mess with the election by being off the ballot, on the ballot, having to then hold up the ballots because Pence's name is on and then his name is on and the ballot is printed with his name and it's too late. And so, you know, we all get a chance to get messed over by them or um, whether it's that he needed a big distraction from his failures to revive the economy or to stop COVID, which is zooming over 210,000 cases and so many deaths. So, you know, really, I think the worst part of this for me, and I assume for most of us, is that we're in a twilight zone of not knowing the truth. And that his... One doctor, Conley, Sean, I think Conley says he's doing fine. His vital signs are fine. And someone else, Phillips, says he needed oxygen. His vital signs are low. Everyone says a week after you get the initial symptoms is when it really strikes. But they let him out in a few days. No one knows where we are. And so it's being back in a position of being a child who whose life depends on these parents who will not divulge what's happening. Right. My biggest concern, and then I want to talk to you about education, then we'll take some calls from our listeners. My biggest concern is that he gets world-class experimental drugs. They're monitoring every heartbeat. Every second. Every second, they're all over him. He's going to survive. Mm-hmm. And I don't wish ill on the president. You're alone in that one. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? You're alone in that one. I, I don't uh, wish ill mm-hmm. on, on the president of the United States when people are listening and watching. I, uh, <laughs> okay. But uh, I think he is a, a horrible human being. This is what I'm worried about. Uh uh, McEnany, the Kaylee has it. She's going to survive. Hope Hicks has it. She's going to survive. Melania, she's going to survive. Tillis, they're all going to survive because they have world class health care. And then they're going to be able to say to the, re- the rest of the Republicans who are prone to vote for Trump that, see, we told you it's the flu. It's just a bad flu. That's what I'm worried about, that he's going to show up for the debate and they'll, they'll put him, you know, he'll juice, they'll give him some kind of steroids and he'll be the same old Trump against Biden and he'll perpetuate the myth that this is just a bad flu. Yes, well, he did say coronavirus is nothing to worry about. He yeah. did say that yeah. while taking off his mask and 
um, maybe he will be spared. That's true. And certainly, first of all, they come to their situation having had the choice of the best health care from the time they were babies. Mm-hmm. And being with clean air, they're not living next to the incinerator and in the neighborhood where the asthma rates are the highest because they are near the pollutants. And, you know, he's gone to summer camp. He's obviously, well, he eats crap. I mean, he gets all his fast food. But he's very healthy because he's been well-maintained. His money has maintained his health. And the reason that most of the people who have died are Hispanic and black is because they're poor. It turns out that children prosper not so much because of the money in their family, although with education what it is, that that's more and more a factor, but because of the resources available to them. Right. And he's grown up with infinite resources. He got $214 million from daddy to help get himself started, and he has had the best of everything that he could afford in terms of health. And therefore, he comes to the disease with such wild advantages. And that isn't publicized. And that is, he will say, which he already did say, don't worry about the coronavirus. Now we may collapse tomorrow, and then that will have been another lie. Right. Just another one. Well, let's talk about education. I think New York City is experiencing a spike with the COVID-19, they may have to close the schools back down. What What is happening with American education? Well, it's really American public education has been needful of life support for quite a while. Public education was instituted, like most big changes in the United States, because of a combination of reasons in because the immigrants were coming from Eastern Europe, didn't know the language, didn't know the mores, didn't know how to behave at work, and they didn't want to have to, the industrialists didn't want to have to train them. They wanted a workforce that understood instructions and and mores enough to function at the factory, so they supported it. And also people did feel that children ought to be educated. It really wasn't until 1938 that the child labor laws were passed and public education started in the 1800s, but they wanted to Americanize the immigrants. However, there was a chance, there always was a chance for people to get ahead. City College was free and there were always... I don't mean to interrupt you, but City College, many think, saved the intellectual Jewish tradition while Hitler was killing off all the Jewish intellectuals in in Europe, City College was replacing them. That's right. City College was. And a lot of those Jews fleeing and intellectuals and socialists fleeing ended up at the New School, which also was perpetuating the best of those cultural traditions. But right now, 50% of Black and Hispanic and Native American children aren't being educated at all. And 30% of white children, whole rural areas, which are mainly white. Is that because of COVID or pre-COVID? 
it's because of COVID, they don't even bother. Right. They don't bother with the um, internet because kids don't have internet because there aren't internet providers in many rural areas. Or homeless shelters. Or homeless shelters either. And in the cities, what you have is a scene in which you, you are issued a Chromebook by a public school, little inexpensive computer. You're not sure how to work it, neither is anyone else in your house. Right. If there's a computer glitch, forget it. Who's going to fix the glitch? Right. Nobody. Also, your parents may not be computer savvy. Or if the instrument doesn't work, everybody used the same little cell phone for their lessons. That's ridiculous. Everyone wants the same cell phone. If you have a parent like you do in New York, where over half of parents in public schools are single parents, usually single mothers, often they're in retail and they have to work. So either you're taken care of by an older sibling who is not doing their schoolwork or by a grandparent who hardly speaks the language and certainly doesn't know how to work the computer and if she barely does, can't fix it. And if you do have the computer working, I have a client who is actually two clients who are teachers. He sees in the background when he's teaching people walking around naked, he hears people fighting in the other room and screaming at one another so that the environment of a quiet, separate space is not available to enormous numbers of children in this city who are not being educated. And so that Bill Gates in his ultimate cynical greed is trying to work out with Cuomo, who seems very enthusiastic about it, that they should just go over to remote education and sell all that property that has schools. And that would mean that throwing children who are already headed for the slag heap face down on top. And that's half of black and brown children and a third of white children. So that you are willingly wasting your resources. In a country like France, which is a country I know something about, they have pods where teachers teach four or five children remotely and keep track of them. And if someone's not there, there's someone to go over there and figure out why the kid isn't on the um, remote machine. And in other places, like in Scandinavia, they have kids come to school in little pods that are sealed with all these health benefits, but they're being educated. And I think what's happened here with education is that the United States is not investing in in education for the mass of people. They're hiring the Chinese and investing in the Chinese education and the Indian education and the Brazilian education for their scientists and their future. And if you're not already privileged, your kids are being thrown on the slag heap. Right. And that's what's happening. And it, it had been going on for quite a while since the mid-70s that the public schools were being starved. But it's accelerating. The private schools, in contrast, have 97% atten- um, success instead of 50 or less and are doing very well with imaginative 
programs with teachers with very few children to engage with personally online. And so that the huge chasm between those who have and those who don't is widening further. And that's what's happening with education. It's being thrown away for for mass of people. So you're saying Bill Gates wants the United States to sell off the land where all the schools are and then use those profits to buy Microsoft products and computers and software for our kids. He doesn't really care about the property. He cares about selling remote education because that's what he sells. Right. Computers and remote education mechanisms. And Cuomo's all down for it because why educate the mass of people anyway? And you can sell the buildings to private people. Right. So that the combination is hair raising because public education, faulty as it is, is one of the few, although it's a path strewn with debris, it's one of the few paths that children can have a caring teacher who's there personally. Plus, most of the reporting on child abuse comes through the schools. It's the teacher who notices that the kid is bruised. It's the school nurse who calls in the report. And so that without that contact, kids are much worse abused than they were before. It's the only meal. Some, the, the schools, is, uh, sometimes it's the oh, only much. meal. That's right. It's the only full meal the kids have. And often a school will offer breakfast even though some of the kids have breakfast at home, they can have breakfast there, so everybody does, plus a big lunch, which is a huge help. One in four children in the United States experiences food scarcity, they call them. Right. We call it starvation, hunger. Right. And so that you also don't have the feeding that goes on at the schools. You're throwing a generation of children away. And you don't have to. There are pods as well, little collections of kids with a teacher that you can manage. You can manage education outside. You could use all those auditoriums and and movie theaters that are closed and open them up for well-spaced education and hire a lot of teachers. All of these things are possible. It is an act of it is an act. It is an act of compassion to want to open up the schools when you consider how many kids need to be protected from their parents or where they live and they need to be fed there. This is an example of where the the cure is worse sometimes than the disease. Did you read about Friends, Brooklyn Friends School? The, the Quaker? No, tell me. Uh, all the rich people when I was growing up sent their kids to Friends, the Quaker school, to learn about social responsibility. And now Brooklyn Friends will not recognize the union, that the the teachers have unionized at Brooklyn Friends. And, you know, it's okay Mm -hmm. to teach social responsibility, but if you try to practice it here at Brooklyn Friends, not not on our watch. No friend to labor. But... Let's go. We have a question from Lane in uh, CM, England. Hello, Lane. Good evening, David, and good evening, Dr. Fraud. Um, I've had a theory since sort of, well, two or three months ago that purely based on Trump's past and his 
his history of leaving like businesses just strewn in his in his wake, basically mm-hmm. from failed projects, and that his ego is such that he may quit before the election because he doesn't like to lose; he likes to quit. I think I don't think he can bear losing. And so I've I've had this theory. Do you think that sticks at all, or no? You go first. No, I don't think so, because he has twenty six sexual assault cases that will proceed once he gets out, and he also has fraud and theft and other cases which will be held up if they're federal cases as long as he's the president. And so he's looking at um, some serious time if he ever stops being president and yes. that's a major incentive for him staying out of jail yes okay those, those minor things aside <laughs> <laughs> those minor little discrepancies aside do you think there's a no i'm joking all right yeah that's a good answer brilliant yeah yeah i just want to wrap your brains because uh, i really respect your opinion so yeah yeah well look he doesn't like to be a loser yeah. And he's trying to arrange to steal it so he won't. But in any case, he needs to stay in office to stay out of jail. So I had a feeling, I had this image of him quitting and saying, oh, I was only meant to shake up things and blah, 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 and all that stuff. You know? yeah. And I think, to be honest, if, if he did do something like that, what a marketing opportunity. So he, he, he's, well, he's obviously the most famous person in the world as it is at the moment, but... He also has $500 million that is coming due next year. And I've talked about this on the show, Dr. Fraud, that the people around him, they're all mobsters. They can't help themselves. And they see the same way they look at the United States Treasury and say, how do we how do we get our hands on this? They look at the campaign cash that's coming in. And they're thinking, yeah. that's mine. I, I have to yeah. have this. And I think he's going to lose because he's not spending any of that money. He's laundering it to pay his legal bills come January 22nd, 2021. Right. And he can't well, escape New York state charges, even if he can escape the federal ones. And Pence excuses him. He won't escape the New York charges of fraud and sexual assault. So I think it's true. They they go crazy. (laughs) I might stick a cheeky tenor when I'm doing it. Just a little... I'm sorry? I might stick a cheeky little tenor on at the the bookies and say, well, you know... Are you going to bet on the... uh... Yeah, yeah. Not that I endorse betting at all. It's an addiction that's really bad. Bad. (laughs) Anyway. Well, good luck. I'm you. <laughs> Thank you, Lane. Uh, Lane is very funny. We were just wrapping up the show early Friday morning when news came that uh, Donald Trump tested positive. So we kept the show going. And Lane was doing a very funny impersonation of uh, Donald Trump. Are you there, Lane? Do you remember what she said? Um, I think I complained about um, whenever see it's it's weird at the moment whenever I hear the word Melania Trump 
I've got Martha Prevett in me head. Oh, no, you did so, a you did an you like you did a great impression of. Yeah, but the point was like he, every time Martha comes on the show, she right. says, you "Like to see my teeth." All right, all right, let's uh, keep I it was, All right, let's. I was there. Um, she does. What you got? She says it. It's on the show. All right. But I was like pretending to be a really unhappy Donald Trump, like sick of sick of her going around saying that to everybody, basically. Right. That would be funny. Anyway, you were saying I have the I te- nobody tests better than I, I do on COVID. Yeah. That's right. Got the biggest COVID. Nobody tests COVID like me. Right. Uh, I've got the best right. COVID. And, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, so the best right. COVID. That would be. Thank you, Lane. Thank okay. you. Great. So there's a guy named Brad Parscale who was one of the campaign managers for Trump. He was demoted over the summer. We think because the poll numbers were bad. We know that Brad Parscale spent close to a million dollars of campaign funds on his own social media. And now there's talk that Brad Parscale may be involved in some money laundering operation for the Trumps. The police were called last week in Florida because... He was allegedly hitting his wife. She was bruised. And they had to evoke the Baker Act and put him under psychiatric observation in Florida because he was threatening to kill himself. And he has 10 guns, was waving it around. And the video of him being tackled by the cops, it's really haunting to to see the, the Florida police tackling this guy, holding a beer. He's obviously has a drinking problem. This was the president of the United States campaign manager. Mm-hmm. You have Corey Lewandowski, one of the first campaign managers who right. allegedly right. assaulted mm-hmm. a, a reporter for Breitbart, a female. Right. Uh, Paul Manafort is in prison right now. Steve Bannon was arrested for defrauding the some charity i'm sorry the wall fund the wall fund they're not good at what they do these these are these are sick men aren't they violently sick wife spousal abusers misogynists they all seem to gravitate to him and he to them. I mean, and it's not only the men, you know. Um, suddenly her name eludes me. Hope Hicks was involved with a guy who had a history of spousal abuse. One of the, And one Tim of the, Guilfoyle was sexually abusing her assistants. So right. even as a woman, she was on it. Kelly right. Con- Kellyanne Conway's daughters claimed to have been abused. Right. So um, he has quite... The crew, but he has a crew of self-serving people who want to get money and share that with him and will kiss his ass in order to do so. And that's what he's about. And what's sad is that there are so many people who need to believe in the great leader that they can oversee the most outrageous abuses of him and his cronies. It's true the campaign fund has been looted because they can't get their hands off the cash. 
And what is the pathology in dealing with the mental illness? These are obviously, I mean, this is the sickest crew of gangsters ever to make it to the Oval Office. Yeah, I think what the sickness is, it's a real sickness of capitalism. More is better. I am better if I get more. And it's all about more for me. And it's never enough. And it might have started with, I need more because I need to get the edge over my capitalist competitor who could have a machine that's more efficient than mine. And then I'd have to spend the money and so on. But it becomes an end in itself. I am good because I have money. Look at Epstein, horrible sex abuser, has his little office at Harvard, at Brown. He's welcomed at MIT. He's, you know, he's treated as if he's a scholar. He's a sex trafficker. And on some level, many of them know it. But if you're rich, you're considered adorable somehow. That's why Bill Clinton recently had a lunch with Ghislaine Maxwell, who was sexy and cute. The fact that she's a... um, an accomplice in sex abuse made her more interesting to the jaded folks in that circle. And she's very rich. But I think basically everything is subordinated to the idea I am better and I am more if I get more for me. Right. And it's never, ever enough. That's uh, Karl Marx said, you know, accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. That is Moses and your prophets. With a double meaning there. But there is a compulsion for more and anything and everything can be sacrificed. Has it ever been this bad before? It has to have been. In the 20th century, we, we saw... We saw this in the lead up to the Great Depression, the greed, but... Why does this time feel different? Well, we're experiencing it, and it's the first one for a long time. Then after World War II, America was a hero and revered. And that's totally changed. They don't even let us in most places. And we now have, you know, the lower literacy than more than 45 other countries. I mean, we, we, we have 86% literacy. 28 countries have 100%. And they're not just rich countries like Scandinavian countries. They're also places like Cuba or Slovenia. I mean, we, we are sinking terribly. And partly it's because we're trying to hold on to an empire when the other imperialists have realized the jig is up. Right, right. But we're in terrible shape. And if Biden wins, Howie Klein was on earlier saying it's not going to get any better under Biden. But no, it will not get better. But with people rising up, people can have a chance to rise up, realizing it's not getting better, fighting for an American dream that hasn't been true since the late 70s and pushing for reasonable wages and taxing the wealthy in order to give people basic standards of living, which is way overdue. Right. And so, I mean, I don't, I'm not thrilled with Biden, of course, 
But if Biden, if Trump wins, it's all over for the planet. If Biden wins, we really do have a much greater fighting chance. And that's why I think he should be supported, not because he's superior in any way. Make it, you know, vote for him and then make his life miserable. Are you are yeah, you finding exactly. your, your patients are bringing the the news into the office? Yes. More yes, everyone is terrified and people are unsettled. They don't know what's going to happen to them. They have a very unsafe leader in charge. They can't believe what he says. They're constantly lied to by ads anyway, all day. Now they're lied to here. They are unsafe. Their jobs are precarious. The eviction prohibitions are coming off. So are the debt collectors getting reactivated. And what is it? 60% of the country is insecure and frightened financially and 40% are actually failing, have nothing. And so people are in desperate straits. And as McConnell pushes forward on Express to install Amy Coney Barrett, he's not in any hurry to give a stimulus for these, for the mass of Americans who are in terrible trouble. So that the priorities are terrifying. And people are terrified and not for nothing. Everyone is more anxious. Everyone is frightened. Yes. Only the one percent is secure. Professor Adnan Hussein is joining us. Can you stick around? I know he had some questions he wanted to ask you. Good. Let's Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Professor Adnan Hussein. It's time to talk about Donald John Trump. <laughs> okay. <coughs> yep. Okay. in the city, hot times 
Christmas in the city. Hot times in the city. Hot times in the city. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. We're having a vice presidential debate watch party Wednesday night, and I want to invite everybody to attend our vice presidential debate watch party. If you go to DavidFeldmanShow.com, hit the attend a live taping pull down menu, you'll get a link and you can come into the Zoom room and watch it with us and make jokes and then we're going to do a live recording of the podcast. We'll also live stream the recording of the podcast on YouTube as we're doing right now. Joining us from beautiful Canada, where he's cleaning out an attic for me and Dr. Harriet Fraud to yes. to hide is Professor Adnan Hussein. He's the chairman of the religion department at Queen's University, Ontario in Canada. And yesterday I attended the Discord group where you teach Capital. And I. Well, where we read Capital together and um, hold a good dis discussion about it. And uh, every week I typically do a summary of the 28 pages that uh, Rorikey, um has chosen uh, at four days, uh, four pages a day for us to read. But we were very lucky this last week to have um, a guest summary from uh, Professor Ann Lee, and we had a really great discussion. And it's pleasant to listen to. I was tidying up and I had the audio going and it, autumn is upon us. And there was something cozy about listening. It was a, a seminar. Hard to understand. It's a you know, this is tough going for uh, simple minds like me. but Well, you know, I'm impressed at that. And I found out it on uh, my show, It's Not Just in Your Headline with David Golding, we interviewed the head of the Marxist reading group for the Sex Workers hmm. Alliance. And they have a very lively Marxian reading group as well. So that, it, you know, the legitimacy of understanding Marx and his analysis of the capital that is crumbling around us is marvelously compelling and ubiquitous. I was thrilled to find that out. That's really interesting. I think there really is an appetite uh, for almost the forbidden knowledge of, um, you know, why the world is so entirely screwed up. People are yeah. seeking that the, the typical conventional answers and truths that have been provided them don't add up and uh, perhaps there's a lifeline to understanding analysis maybe even hope uh, in these dark times by uh, engaging with uh, marx's critique of capitalism so you know i think we're having a, an enjoyable discussion it's a way to sharpen our minds uh, a little bit and um, and try and adapt it to um, our day to day, I think. You know, what's really interesting. I'm into MOOCs, these classes that you can take online. Sorry, but uh, I know you teach, uh, but they are convenient for older people to take classes. And I 
subscribe to the teaching company, Coursera, and there's another one, edX. These are allegedly the top universities, the top professors around the world. I have looked up Marx in Coursera at the teaching company, uh, edX, not a single class Hmm. on Marx or communism. And I'm thinking... Well, the TED Talks don't have it either. Yeah. I mean, these are academic. These are billed as the top professors from the top schools. At one point, wasn't more than half the world living under some kind of Marxist philosophy? Yeah. And I think that we're still suffering from the McCarthyite anti-left crackdown that decimated the unions, kicked the sparks out of the union, which were the socialists and the communists and the leftists. And we haven't recovered. And intellectually, we haven't recovered. It's almost as though teaching Marx to kids is tantamount to teaching sex ed or you know it being showing them pornography <laughs> that, that, that we have to be protected and and we've been infantilized here in the United States so that we cannot be exposed to Marx because it'll put crazy ideas in our head that would be detrimental to us that's how they rationalize yeah well you know it it has been a huge repression people in the in academia who were Marxists, were discriminated against routinely. In Germany, part of the Marshall Plan deal was that they couldn't allow Marxism to be taught in their universities. But what was great for them is so all the Marxists went into the union movement, which is enormously powerful. In In Germany? Germany. Yes. Not here in the United States, though, you can't. No, no, because both in the union movement, Philip Murray, with pressure from the Catholic Church, and he was the assistant head of the AFL-CIO at the time, made sure that they threw out all the communists, socialists, and um, leftists in their unions. And what happened was they did. And so that, therefore, they lost the spark that had the vision of workers ought to control the factory. They ought to cooperatize this, which made the fight much more than the 25 cents an hour. It gave people a vision and a hope and a sense of possibility and energy. And once that was gone, we now have a decimated union movement. And those unions that are starting up are often independent. Well, they're not in the AFL-CIO. Hopefully, Sarah Nelson will win the presidency of the AFL-CIO and spark it up again. But, you know... Here's what I would like to do. Uh, uh, We have a question from Bullseye Dad. So let me take his question, because I always get accused of hogging Dr. Fraud. And then we'll have Professor Adnan Hussein ask his question. What is your question, Bullseye Dad? Yeah, thanks. Regarding um, Marxist analysis of uh, current events and capitalism, I'm wondering if there is a place in. in Hen- the I'm sorry to interrupt, or, but um, when Henry so Huckamacki shows up, we all get happy. Everybody is excited. Henry, Henry's yeah. here. 
Yeah, so um, since Marx did his writing, we, we know a bit more about the world. We have uh, chemical theory and, and we know about genetics. Um, from a Marxist perspective, is there is there something we can say about Marxist remedies um, vis-a-vis capital, be, uh, you know, uh, address the greater problems of capitalism? Yeah, I, I, could you restate the so, question, please? Okay. I, I, I interrupted you. Um, Marx, Marx wouldn't know anything about global warming. Marx wouldn't know about plutonium. Uh, I, I'm assuming, if, if I'm speaking correctly historically. Mm-hmm. So as far as Marx is concerned, what, what are the remedies? What would Marx say about the existence of plutonium? What would it be um, um, just simply something for the people to control? Or would it be, um, would his theory have to be more holistic? Well, I think what you'd look at, at least for my take on Marxism, what Marx does is he shows you what class is and how it operates in the world. So it asks the question, Who is producing the wealth, the profit, the extra? Who is appropriating it and distributing it and to whom? And you can look at that, whether it's the sexual economy of a bedroom, or you can look at it in a household, or you could look at it in a factory. But that doesn't mean that he would have an analysis on plutonium. He would look at the class basis of its extraction and use. Because Marx's great contribution is class analytics. And class is the most repressed discourse in the United States. And suddenly people are realizing as the United States crumbles, we need such a discourse. But I don't know if it would address specifics like plutonium. It would look at the relationships around plutonium, around what's going on about global warming and why it's warming. And look at who is profiting from this and who is doing the labor, who is appropriating the fruits of that labor. Those would be the questions asked rather than the information about a given substance. Great. Does that make sense? Oh, of course, of course. I love your answer. Thank you. Thank you. Bullseye is a new addition to our show, so we're glad to have him here. Professor Adnan Hussein, I know you wanted to talk to Dr. Harriet Fraud about something. Well, I just uh, we've been having um, a couple of conversations about uh, some of the emotional responses to the current situation and crisis. When we talked about the personality of fascism, when we talked about uh, the kind of rage and anger that seems to you know motivate uh, far right uh, responses to the conditions that we all recognize and so on. So um, I read this uh, article that uh, was suggesting that the strange um, anxiety mixed with a listless uh, apathy uh, that's derived from isolation uh, actually has a long history, kind of forgotten um, basis uh, in um, ancient Greek uh, ideas uh, of this emotional state called acedia, 
um, that some early Christian thinkers talked about as one of the real challenges and kind of sinful temptations or conditions that a monk uh, could fall into uh, where their isolation starts to break down and turn very unproductive because they have this anomie, this apathetic, listless lack of concern or regard, but a kind of contradictory sense of um, not being able to concentrate and being anxious and something that's often been called the noonday demon. In fact, actually, John Cashin talks about it as the noonday demon that afflicts the soul and um, is something of a metaphor for depression. I think Andrew Sullivan wrote a book called The Noonday Demon a decade or so ago. So I thought it would be interesting um, to ask about what kind of a Marxist analysis or class-based analysis would look uh, like if we were talking about this set of feelings and this range of emotions and how we would situate this emotion within the broader set of possible responses. Um, because the article was saying, well, we all feel this. And of course, we don't all feel this because our circumstances in these situations are different. So I thought I'd ask Dr. Fraud. I sent her the article and I was just interested in her response and analysis about this emotional state. We all recognize it's a terrible year and people have been going through so, so much cataclysm and there's so much political anxiety on top of the health anxiety and all the inequalities that exist. So I just wanted to um, have uh, her response. Well, I really do think along with um, the theologian and therapist and minister Episcopal minister, I think he's Episcopal, Bruce Rogers Vaughn, that the soul is the connection. Your soul is your connection. And I think a soul pain of um, that you're talking about in acedia is the lack of connection. Mm. If you're living alone or if you're living with people with whom you really never developed an intimate connection, and you also never developed an intimate connection with yourself to know who you are and know your different aspects and watch them coming up and thinking, whoa, this is coming out of me and I have to get to know her. This is Harriet, you know, with some kind of pain, but also excitement at the knowledge, then you're lost. And even if you're in the life of a city, and you walk around and you look at people and you smile at people and you go into a store and you compliment the lady's nails or whatever else. And she has, she smiles at you. There are the, all these myriad moments of human connection that remind you that you're not alone in this world. But if you are alone and everything is, you know, you get your groceries delivered or you go out seeing people as potential contagion and masked, or and frightened that others aren't masked, the connectedness, which is the soul of us, our sense of one of being part of each other, is frayed. You know, in China, divorces went up thirty three percent after they were after their isolation period because of COVID. So also, people who never got to know each other or themselves are living together alone, each very much alone, their feelings of listlessness and isolation and alienation and loneliness 
would only increase. And so I think that's what's happening. Our, we are soul starved because if soul is connection, unless we are very scrupulous and into exploring one another and ourselves in connection, we're out of luck here. And so that people are suffering emotionally. And if you want to say soul is connection, they're suffering spiritually as well, because the spirit of connection with other people is invaluable. You know, at the beginning of the isolation period, my daughter and I took a long walk and we walked down the street and a woman opened her door and said, people, hello, people. Because <laughs> nobody walked down that street for such a long time. And it was so exciting. But there was a bond just because we were humans. And I think that is sadly lacking and it's a vast loneliness. Also, if you don't, if you haven't done the work to get to know who you are, including the parts that aren't so great, then you also have the loneliness of self-estrangement, which isn't replenished by connection with other people. So it's a very, very bad time. And I can see why acedia is setting in. Mm-hmm. Drinking mm-hmm. levels, the reporting is increasing, especially among women. Yes. Tw- up tr- something like 20%. Well, the, the majority of women aren't married. And in a city like New York, 60% of people live alone or did before this. And so that the idea that, okay, I live alone, I go to the same bar every night and I have, you know, a, a drink and I talk to the people who are there and I go here and I go there and I interact and with my work buddies, we go out afterwards. Uh-uh. It's all gone. All gone. Today, all gone. I, I felt... I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, Professor Hussein, but mm-hmm. today, before the show started, I felt alienated and what am I doing? And, you know, I turn on the show and there's Professor Mike Steinel and Dan Frankenberger. And it's not the same thing as going to a studio and seeing co-workers, but these are right. people I care about. And I'm, all of a sudden, my whole body changed and I could just feel some of the tension dissipate it's almost as though professor who's saying that they they want us to be isolated the system is in place for us to be further and further isolated yes and as dr fraud said from ourselves from our sense of self Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think uh you know we've talked a little bit about um the consumer capitalist uh, mode that, you know, actual connections between people, which of course are based on real sentiments of solidarity or empathy or alliance or collaboration or cooperative, these things don't, you know, are not easy to uh, uh, exploit in the market. They can't be commodified. They resist uh, the kind of consumer logics. And um, it's, it seems that, uh, making people feel in neoliberalism that they're alone, that they're weak, that they're powerless Mm. um, and alienated is absolutely conducive to just a consumer culture as the only way of having 
connection and community and forming, you know, bonds of a very superficial kind around kind of consumer culture. Um, and if you actually have people working together, collaborating, seeing their interests mm-hmm. aligned, uh, doing projects that are fulfilling and having those connections that you end up developing a kind of resistance perhaps to these easily easy exploitation um you know uh in consumer culture so when you say it's almost as if they want i don't know how intentional any of this is but uh it seems that we are facing such atomization every force comes against you forging a bond of solidarity with others whether it's in the workplace whether it's in your communities you know because it's much easier to deal with us when we're isolated individuals um, both politically economically socially and also of course that's the absolute that kind of atomization undermines class consciousness uh, so there's a lot of things that should be cre- creating and producing class consciousness but the ideology of neoliberalism and the particular kind of consumer capitalism that we are experiencing really tends to undermine us seeing those collective relationships and bonds it does and yet in the starvation for those relationships more people are unionizing than have since the 1970s. The, the Nurses Union won in North Carolina for the first time since 1975. A, a private hospital was unionized, and it's a big hospital. And I think what's happening is twofold. There is this alienation. David's show, I have suggested to people that they join the Friday night. They love it. They feel connected. You're doing that for people by providing this show. And there is, at the same time as there's this terrible alienation, there's a tremendous hunger for solidarity. And so you have, I saw the figure, 15 million Americans have participated in Black Lives Matter protests which is quite amazing because you can get COVID with all that screaming. And that's so across the nation. And people are unionizing who never did before. And people are in Marxian reading groups. I was thrilled that the sex workers have their own Marxian reading group. And, and the woman who was its organizer, Gemma Paradise, told me that, look, this Everyone's naturally a radical and a feminist in that tra- in that chain of work. So we have a great group that there is this hunger as a chasm widens between the haves and have nots and people are lonely. There's also the need to bond that comes out of the loneliness. It's the other side of the dialectic. Henry. Yeah, I don't know. Did Dr. Fraud talk earlier about sex workers on here? I, I just joined recently. Okay, so Dr. Fraud, I listened to your latest episode of um, It's Not Just in Your Head, which was with uh, two excellent guests as well as your co-host. And there was one point that I thought was really interesting that I'd like you to kind of recapitulate for the audience here that wouldn't have listened to your your episode, which is you brought up the point that it seems to be that sex workers 
are taking on or are having to take on a lot of the same responsibilities of mental health care workers these days. Uh, and then there was a very interesting back and forth between you and your co-host and your guests on that point. Would you be willing to uh, kind of recapitulate that point for the audience? I here? I don't know if I could recapitulate it, but it is interesting. Ventikesh is a specialist in this and a professor at Columbia. And she discovered in her study that 40% of high-end sex workers don't actually have sex at all with their clients. They hold them, they listen to them talk, they look in their eyes, they stroke them, and the sex is a pretext for intimacy for men who can't be intimate emotionally unless there's a sexual component to reassure them they're really men. And um, so that I think... You know, one of the sex workers that we talked to said that she, when her clients get to that territory, she has a list of therapists that she recommends, but that they're, because it is men who go to prostitutes overwhelmingly and men who are the majority of porn watchers and strip attendees and so on, it's the problem of huge loneliness which is in, within a culture that makes it unmanly to want to be held, to be lonely, to be needy of comfort, unless it's wedged into the masculine acceptability of the sex drive. And so that sex workers are often hired to be emotional companions. I had a client who was a salesman for a huge American corporation and who used to order drinks and get one for a prostitute at the bar. Then he'd pour his in the rug because he didn't particularly like to drink. But then he would hire her for the night just to have somebody to sleep next to. He didn't want to have sex. He wanted to have another warm body in the bed and hold her sometimes. Do we know what the sex workers experience in different countries? Well, the um, sex Gemma Paradise is an international sex workers organizer. And what people are trying to do across the world is organize an international sex workers union. Because there are similar things, you know, sexism and um, macho are not restricted to the United States. And even in the Netherlands, where they have a more enlightened view of this, a lot of people who go to the prostitutes in the Netherlands are foreigners who want to do that. And it has so much of an implication about the gender stereotyping, the robbing of men of emotional need and a frank connection around emotional need for If comfort. the culture is perverse, I would assume yeah. it bleeds into the sex. Of course it does. And since prostitutes are designated as bad women, a lot is taken out on them. That's why in the United States, the average age of a prostitute is, is death is 34. They have the lowest um, actuarial, I guess, table of all. They're predicted to live to 34 um, because men who are angry at themselves for needing sex 
take it out on the sex workers sometimes. Is there any country, any culture that seems to not necessarily have solved this, but works with it? It feels like the Netherlands has failed, but they haven't. It has. And look, there are enlightening attempts all throughout Scandinavia. And certainly no one has the violence and death rate of sex workers, no one in the Western world that we do, because we're the most violent people. We have over, what is it, 1,029 police deaths, police kill people every year. So there's over 1,000 dead Americans. That we know of. That we know of. that we know of. The Justice they don't keep track of it properly. The number is like seven in Iceland or three in some, you know, in Japan. I mean, we are a very violent, armed people. And so that everything, every expression that we have that could be violent is much more deadly. But I, I think that other countries are grappling it. And for me, as a Marxist who has written about sex work, I have a chapter in the book, um, knowledge and class Marxism without guarantees. And what I really think is what's evil and bad is exploitation. So making money off of sex work as in the brothels in Nevada is really evil or sexual slavery and sexual trafficking. But independent sex workers who do their own sex work and sell it and appropriate the benefits and so on, it doesn't seem immoral at all, nor does having Um, A sex work collective, like the biggest one in the world that I know of, the Usha Collective, which is 20,000 sex workers in Calcutta, of all places, who have their own condom factory, who have their own sanitary products, who have their own bank, because the same banker that could have sex with the prostitute in the evening, the next morning won't give her a loan. So... They borrow money to put each other's, their kids through college and do other things. They have a huge collective, and I, don't, I think that's to be celebrated. Of course, if women had a choice or men had a choice, they wouldn't go into sex work. Sex work is the only work that, that women have where they get more than men. They get more money than men do, and they are uniformly motivated by the need for money. And it's one of the only jobs that women can have part-time where they can make a good enough living so they can support themselves and children. Because over half of sex workers have dependent children and no other source of support. And so in terms of part-time jobs, because they're studying or because they have children or whatever, it becomes a profession. But it wouldn't in a protective society. So if you wanted to get rid of sex work because you didn't think that uh, it was a good thing to have to do, then you'd have to get rid of poverty, and that would be very convenient. Right. And get rid of the, the penalties, A, for motherhood. Mothers make 69 cents of the dollar before, the, before COVID. Now it's probably less. And you'd have to get rid of poverty and provide child care. Well, this has been fantastic. Professor Adnan Hussein, are you going to join us for the vice presidential debate watch party? Uh, I think I will try to do so. Okay. Um, 
I was just wondering if before Dr. Fraud uh, departs, if she could uh, tell us if people are interested in learning more about these Marxist reading sex workers. I think there's a lot of interest uh, uh, to learn more about. It's a Twitter. Um, I'll send it to you and I'll send it to David, the Twitter handle. Great. And um, it's really quite, you know, they have a, a developed reading group for clearly, sex workers. Clearly the cure for acedia lies in that. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it, 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 it lies in connection. The cure for humans lies in connection around a dream for all humans. Because, of course, if you join QAnon, you're connected too. And one of the reasons people, I think, follow Trump is because they want to belong and he makes them belong to the white supremacy club, you know, which is a kind of belonging. But that belonging to something which whose direction improves the mass of people's lives is much more thrilling rather than connection as in QAnon in finding horrible explanations that involve pedophilia and cannibalism, you know. Indeed. Indeed. At any rate, I will get that information out. Thank you. I, we, on the internet. Uh, I promised uh, Professor Harvey J.K. that I would not impinge on his beloved Packers. So thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Thank you, Professor thank you Adnan Hussein. Thank you, Henry Huckamaki. When we come back, we will talk to Green Bay Packers aficionado, Professor <laughs> Harvey J.K. Harvey J.K. He's got a lot to say about Thomas Paine and FDR. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. J.K. wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical. Won't take a sabbatical. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. Thank you. 
Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. Joining us from Wisconsin is the author of Take Hold of Our History and FDR on Democracy, among many other books, Professor Harvey J.K. Thank you for doing this. I think you should just play that for a half hour. I, you know, don't think I didn't think about it. I could listen to well, I, I'll just I'll just get up and dance and that'll entertain. I think. He, he is he is amazing. Professor Mike Steinel. Well, let's talk about Wisconsin and Biden's chances. Well, let's start by the fact that this is these are very, very hard times in Wisconsin. Yes, we are at, at last count third state in the nation in per capita cases of the coronavirus. And in fact, this part of the state, the northeast corner of the state, and Henry's not too far north from me unless he's gone back to Germany in the meantime, um, this is actually the hot spot, so to speak, in the state. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's tough. The case has been rising. They don't look like they'll let up too much very soon. And meanwhile, the, the legislature, the Republican legislature, and some, I forget exactly who I saw today, they're actually suing in court to, uh, to lift the mask mandate. How's that? L- lift the mask mandate. Now, you know, I, I, we're at the point now where it's hard, to, it's hard to come up with the terms to describe a president and a party that are not only committed to subverting democracy, but to wiping out a good part of the American people as they do it. And um, so, you know, that's the situation. Will Biden win? Um, I think right now the, the odds are Biden is going to win well, pretty well. In, I mean, I think he's going to win in a lot of states. And I, the question will be to what extent we can take the Democrats, not that we, well, the Democrats can take the Senate. Um, and by the way, if it turns out otherwise, then all, my all bets are off on this country. All bets are off. I agree because, with you. I agree with you 100 percent. Yeah. So. Uh, I agree with you. 100%. So basically speaking, it's it, you know it's not great. You know, it's funny. This past week has been wild, obviously. Right. And interesting thing that happened today. There's a young fellow in Brooklyn, New York who's a student at uh, St. Francis College, and he keeps in touch with me almost daily. And, and we got to talking a little bit about the news, just generically the idea of the news. And he said, yeah, and, and we talked about the fact that, that Trump's case sort of obliterated talk of his failure to pay anything in taxes, you know, obliterated the fact that Melania cursed out Christmas and children at the same time. Right. And then I just said, I said not to, and I said not to mention the fact that there was a debate the other day and he comes back and he goes, Oh my God, that seems like at least a month ago. You know, that's, that's how wearing each of these days has been. And I can tell you how effective Trump, I can tell you how effective the Trump presidency has been on my conscious consciousness. Um, I actually got came to the point today where I don't believe he was ever sick. Yeah, that's. Well, I thought that just to show you that I'm at they're out of touch with reality and screwing us. And in the along the way, they've driven the rest of us mad. Right. Right. I say he's not smart enough to pull something like that off. Probably not with the numbers of people involved, but. And then, then you got to add to that the um, was it Don Jr. 
sort of expressed himself. He thought his father had gone crazy, going crazy. Did you see that? Uh, I, I know that the family was upset about his. Some were upset that he had gone to Walter Reed. Don Jr. said what? Well, Don Jr. thought that perhaps he was he was actually losing it. His father might be losing it. And Jared, I think it was a divide between Don Jr. and Jared and Ivanka. That kind of thing. Losing yeah. it because he was... Because, he, because of, uh, not, not for, even necessarily the truth, I think it was the idea that he got in that uh, SUV, the black SUV, and, and went out right. to, to wave to his family. That's like royalty, you know? Like, right. ready, instead of doing this, I was waiting for him to do this, the, the royal wave, you know? Like, like Queen Elizabeth does. Well, he's on a hormone treatment, a steroid treatment, so that's yeah. supposed to cause aberrations and delusions of grandeur. Seriously, Henry had talked about this. I, I, no, I'm, I'm only laughing because I'm trying to think if, aber, if, if in his aberrational state, is that, a, is that a, an yeah. adjective? Or in that kind of state, would he come across as a little more savvy about right. other people? But, but in fact, he proved otherwise. When today he said that he, not only did he learn a lot, but it, you know, basically there's really nothing to fear and people should... My God, he is so truly effed up. He is so he, he truly is the worst human being. He is, anything he gets. That's all I can say. He is the worst human being to yes. have ever to have ever walked the face of the United States <laughs> or on the face of the United yeah, States. Yeah. I have such a visceral <laughs> hatred for him yep. that I don't. I mean, I, I, you know, it's just beyond. And I and I remember hating him when Sidney Schonberg wrote about him at The New York Times. Sidney oh, yeah. Schonberg wrote The Killing Fields. He'd spent time in Cambodia and, oh, right. yeah. and came back and he said, you know, I I have a little PTSD. I kind of miss Cambodia, Pol Pot. Uh, I think I'll cover Trump. And he wrote about <laughs> Trump. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, Trump is the absolute worst. Uh, yeah. By the way, I, and on that note, as long as we're moving towards the, the campaign questions. So Bernie's still out there. He's out there campaigning for Biden, by the way. You know, I mean, he's keeping a certain distance. You know, it's not like he's up close to anyone. But man, you know, he did it for he did it for Hillary. And she had the audacity to dump on him later. OK. Mm-hmm. He's doing it for Joe now. And you watch that if something really goes wrong along the way, they'll blame Bernie, Bernie's campaign or Bernie for having blown the thing. OK, I mean, but it is the case that the polls, at least, I mean, I've seen people getting actually not just hopeful, but optimistic. And I, I, I worry about that. But nevertheless, I mean, I, I don't want to blind myself to possibilities either. But My we're not saying in. I voted two weeks ago. We're not saying the tightening that usually happens about this time Usually, we see the polls showing like a squeaker. Yeah. Now, I don't know if we've seen his support decrease, but it may well be that thin layer of folks who never quite know what they're going to do have said, oh, this is this man is so mad. I have got to vote him out. And they go then to Biden. If, if you've seen anything, I'm happy to hear about it. Yeah. Uh, some polling has shown since the debate that Biden has doubled his lead. There's some polls showing a 10 percent lead now. For yeah, Biden. And I, I just want to go on record. And I don't often say I told you so, but I said a week ago that he had won. Because 
Biden had won. Yeah. And I had no doubt about his having won. But it wasn't that I felt he enthused people. It's that Trump went so over the top that he that he on national TV, the way he went so over the top, I think reasonable people thought this is a very unreasonable man. Right. He cannot be president for four more years with a pandemic and a depression. It's just unacceptable. Maybe that's he's losing. I I was convinced he's losing white women and senior citizens. A lot of senior citizens, white senior citizens were sympathetic to him. And that does not bode well for Trump in Florida. And if he loses Florida, it's uh, it's over. He's going to lose Pennsylvania, it looks like. Oh, I hope so. And and Minnesota and Wisconsin and Arizona now is in play. Arizona. Yeah, knock on wood. You know, a little superstition here. Knock on wood. So let's let's talk about what they're not talking about in Wisconsin, what Biden isn't talking about. Wisconsin, the residents, the people who vote for Biden, they're going to have their electricity turned off. They can't pay their bills. The evictions are starting. Winter is coming. And everybody's in arrears when it comes to electricity, water, power, heat. Is Biden talking about that? I haven't heard it. And I, you know, Biden had plans of coming to Wisconsin because he knew that the state needed shoring up. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if he should or should not. All I do know is that the Democrats really need to offer a united front on exactly what they will demand out Congress do in the, um, immediately. Even if they can't accomplish it, they've got to make they've got to speak in one voice and very loudly right now. OK, otherwise they could literally lose people in, in out of cynicism and apathy. That's the other thing we have to be careful about. We're getting pretty closer now. Are we what are we three and a half? No. How many weeks to go? Is it a whole month? I, I, think, that off? I think it's like 28 days. 28 days. Okay. I think, I think, let me just check because I I said it at the top of the show. I've been keeping track. Let's just see here. It is. Yeah, four weeks, I guess. Yeah. 28 days. Uh, Has he fired Meadows yet? Who? Trump. Trump? When does, when does uh, the chief of staff get fired for taking? Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's so many voices. I mean, not only in Trump's head, but showing up on the media. You got doctors talking out of both sides of their mouths. You got other people talking out of their rear ends. I mean, it's a, it's a, look. This is the most. This is the, the wildest in all my life. I mean, you know, I ask myself sometimes, what were my parents thinking, or my grandparents for for that matter, in 1965, 66, well, 66, 67, 68, 69. What were they thinking? Were they thinking that things are just so bad or were they thinking that things are out of hand? Whereas things are right now bad, really bad, because until we get uh, until we get a new government in place, a new administration in place, it's going to get it's going to get uglier and uglier. Look, it's got to be clear to everyone that Trump is not going to leave the White House unescorted. I mean, am I the only person who thinks that? I I agree. Unless COVID 
does its patriotic duty. He's reportedly gasping for air in the White House. That's the latest that we're uh, even as we speak. Yeah, that they they think he was gasping. And I can add to that, David. If yeah, you go want. ahead, Henry. Please. There was yeah. a, there was a video about a, an hour and a half ago at this point maybe two hours ago now, um, where he got dropped off at the White House on Marine One, walks up the stairs, he's got his mask on, he takes his mask off, and he looked like he was really snorting air. Uh, he looked like he was grimacing, uh, you know, was trying to look tough, and but yeah, it looked like he was really struggling to catch his breath, even from uh, going up the stairs and standing there, you know, of course he would take his mask off to salute the, the helicopter before it flies away. But yeah, he, he really looked like he was sucking air. Uh, He's got to live. He's got to go to prison. <laughs> <laughs> well, how bad can it get for him health wise? Cause I, here's what I'm thinking. He's got world-class medical care, right? Professor K. Yeah. But this is the second week. This is where, Men of his age and his ill, you know, he's not in great shape, this guy. This is where, Henry, am I wrong? This is the week that, uh, this was the week that will be. Well, he's only been positive for, uh, in theory, he tested positive on Thursday, I think, or, yeah, on Thursday. And uh, so we're, we're less than a week into the diagnosis. But, you know, you're right. In a lot of cases, the people don't die right away. Herman Cain, for example, was... Uh, he died after about three weeks or so after he yeah. tested positive and he was, you know, on ventilators, they said uh, ba- from his Twitter page while well, he was still alive, not his, his ghost's Twitter page, which is still operating and brings me a, a great amount of joy at some points because they tweet things like COVID is a hoax, even though Herman Cain himself. They died do, COVID, but not necessarily that it's a hoax anymore, but they say, Oh yeah, this virus isn't much of a problem. Only the weak die, you know, don't wear your masks and stuff like that. Herman Cain's uh, Twitter page. And they didn't change the name from Herman Cain to now it's listed as the, the Cain gang. Uh, but originally it was still wait, listed as Herman wait. Cain for like almost a month after he died. Oh, wait a minute, and wait they a were minute. tweeting like that. Everyone's talking about, you know, Trump said he's learned a lot and, and, you know, look how he's up and running, you might say, and he's going to bring Herman back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to do it. Right. I mean, this is what, why is this being allowed? Why is Twitter allowing this? At some point, somebody has to step up and say, this is unacceptable. But well, I'm, well, Henry's been following all the details of this even cl- more closely than I have. So I, I heard today, I read this today, that, that Trump actually was not being tested daily, that everyone around him was being tested daily. And so he may well have had it longer than they realized, or it may have been building up longer than they, they realized. This is just something I read earlier today. Right. I had also heard that he tested positive when they found out about Hope Hicks and they said it, it may be a false positive. So he flew to Bedminster, did the fundraiser, was lethargic, had a raspy voice, met with about 100 people, flew back. And then late Friday, late Thursday, early Friday morning, the other test showed that he was positive. Yeah, Which one of these, which one of those is it? When I was a kid, there was something that if you got it, you know, one of the childhood, classic childhood things, if you got it, 
other people were supposed to be brought to you because chicken like, pox, chicken pox there would be a chicken. So just get it out of the way. Yeah. So basically, according to Trump's logic, all of his, all the people who believe him should want to literally swarm with him. Right. Well, herd, herd immunity. Yeah. Right. So, that, Henry, that is that what nice. they're thinking? Do, do they see? I'm worried that they see this as a, a positive. That he's going to survive it. They're all going to survive it. And it's going to be spun as a bad flu, that COVID is a bad flu. They're going to try to spin it anyway. And this is getting back to the point I was making about Herman Cain. He, he took about three weeks to succumb to, to COVID. After about a week or two, give or take, they were saying, oh, yeah, he's on a ventilator, but his other organ systems are doing really well. He's going to get over it. And the reason that he's on a ventilator is because, you know, he's 74 years old. Mm -hmm, I wonder who else is 74 years old. And, uh, you know, he had cancer back in 2006. And so he has a higher risk for dying of COVID. So we've got him on a ventilator. But his organs are looking strong. And they tweeted that almost all the way up until he died. And then after he died, like I said, Herman Cain's ghost was talking about how only the weak die of COVID. But the interesting thing is, is that they knew full well that he wasn't doing well for that time. You know, it may, may have been that early on his respiratory um, markers dropped before his other organ systems did. But that that happens a lot of the time you're not going to be trying to allay people's fears by saying oh yeah his blood oxygen levels dropping and he's on a ventilator but you know his his liver function is is nice but but they were doing that up until about the time that he died and this is about the same thing that we're seeing from trump and now i'm not saying that trump is going to die i mean the, the odds are is that he is not going to die but the point is is that these people that have some reason for trying to downplay the threat of covid they're going to do it even if they know full well that they themselves are in a really tough situation. Herman Cain, you know, at least for a little while before he died, it, they knew that it was at least a, going to be a, a relatively high possibility that he might die. Donald Trump, regardless of whether he's in critical condition or not, is likely going to try to downplay the risk regardless of how he himself is doing at that given point in time. Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of FDR and Democracy. When I was growing up, I was told that FDR's polio was a metaphor for the country and that people voted for him. And you kind of write about this in the, uh, the fight for the four freedoms, that people saw his ability to rise above polio as a metaphor for his ability to bring this country up from the Depression but there was a splendid deception, wasn't there? We well, the splendid, yeah, it's interesting. The, the splendid deception is, and somehow the photographers went, the, the, the journalists went. You know, it's funny. The newspapers, publishers, I should say, they didn't like FDR ever, but never. But they didn't go out of their way to reveal the degree to which he was. I mean, there was no recovering from polio to the extent, he, I mean, he was going to have it. He, he had it. He suffered it, and he lived the consequences of it. But it's also the case that he, when he went out in public, he did not go out in a wheelchair. He put on those terribly burdensome braces, and he walked with somebody at his arm, often a son, but it could have also might have been at various times a military officer. Um, 
and there are pictures of him, but they they were not in the in the newspapers and in the magazines. Um, so indeed, it, you will say on a personal level, he transcended the polio. But it's also the case that despite the newspaper owners and publishers hating him, they really didn't go out of their way to portray him as I'm going to use the term of those days, a cripple. Right. OK, um, so so it is, you know, people probably felt all the more empowered by this man who seemed to transcend you know, this terrible, terrible. Uh, so the, the American people, see. Professor K, the American people thought that they knew that FDR had polio. But they were were the Americans lying to themselves about no, no. And, and, and ultimately, I don't know if it mattered very much. Here, here's the key thing. If this is where you were going about, you know, Trump, could he do the same kind of transcendence? Right. The big difference is that that Roosevelt never, ever underestimated, even in public, the impact of polio on people's lives. So that every year, I believe on his birthday, he would hold an event at the White House to combat you know, to raise funds and to come, you know, to call people's awareness to polio. So, I mean, I mean, and he re- he opened that um, that in quotes resort, that retreat at Warm Springs as a place where polio sufferers could go for therapy and, you know, basically a, a, a certain kind of escape from the woes of the, of their disease. You're not going to see Trump setting up hotels for people who are suffering the, the long-term uh, consequences of COVID. I mean, we're talking about two, as you can imagine, two utterly different kind of human beings, okay? And I want to say this. I tweeted this today, and I mean it. Donald Trump is a traitor to the United States and human decency. Yes. Henry? I, I just want to throw one thought out there and i'm happy to be contradicted professor k if you disagree with me but as you said the newspapers and the media all knew that fdr was in a wheelchair but they never really put that into the press even though they hated him we also know that a majority of the media doesn't like trump i mean basically outside of the fox news sphere the rest of the media is not exactly rosy towards him but if you look at the coverage that he gets they always stop short of outright uh, what would be construed as an attack on him even if it's based on on accurate grounds if he puts out something counter to what we know are the facts they're always willing to at least both sides it, if not just report what he says and not the other side. And the reason I bring this up yes. is because Donald Trump is saying, you know, all the time, oh, yeah, I'm feeling better. I feel better than I felt in 20 years, which is one of his, his most recent statements. It was just a few hours ago. I feel better than I have in 20 years. And the, the papers are willing to report that. But there's very little, you know, once in a while they might allude to, yeah, they're getting contradictory signals coming out from the administration. This doctor that was working on him contradicted that doctor, but nobody's really willing to report on, you know, we have this inside information that people should be aware of because it's not nice to put that sort of information out there. Even Twitter, for example, Twitter, you know, is a, they they claim that they're the the beacon of free speech you know anybody can put whatever they want out there and 
they've been banning accounts where people say that they've been hoping for Donald Trump to die. Now, of course, you know, you probably don't want to be putting that on Twitter that you hope that Donald Trump dies. But on the other hand, that allows the on Twitter, it allows Donald Trump to have what he says without much of a pushback from the complete opposite side. And I'm just wondering if you think that there's some sort of parallel there between the media back in the 1930s and 1940s, knowing that FDR was in a wheelchair, but not really attacking him on that point, despite hating him, even though it was, it was true. It, it was true, you know, uh, versus now the media hates Trump again, outside the Fox news sphere, but it always seems like they're willing to pull their punches if he even tries to make any sort of statement to the contrary of what is either entirely true or potentially I, I, true. Henry, uh, I'm a, I, David, I was just going to say, and I, I wonder if you're about to say what I'm going to, what I desperately want to say, and that is, I don't think until the very recent days the media has indicated at all that they hated him. Look, I got in a public sure. argument. No, no, no. I, I agree with you. I don't think that they've acknowledged that they've hated him. I just know that a majority of the people working in the media do hate him. Yeah, but, uh, but they, like, just yeah. hang on. But they do yeah. report this is a lie. If you read CNN or if you read The Washington Post or The New York Times or The LA Times, they will say the president said that a vaccine will be available in two weeks this is a lie. I have seen that repeatedly in the mainstream media. Henry, your microphone is scraping yes. against uh, you. Sorry, David, I, I just want to say, yeah, you're, you're right. But that wasn't really what I was getting at. So okay. if FDR had made a blatant lie as a statement, they also would have pointed that out. But they didn't attack him as something that could have been construed as a personal attack, like him being disabled and in a wheelchair right. that, that they thought was taking it a bit too far. If he right. said something like, oh, yeah, the economy is going to be doing this and no economists agreed with him, the newspapers wouldn't have held back. They would have they would have written that. Right. Yeah. Just Professor Kay, I interrupt. You. Okay, one, yeah. last, one thing I do want to point out is that when Donald Trump said he hadn't felt so well in 20 years, this good in 20 years, maybe we should take maybe that's true. Because he made me feel every time I would have any encounter with him in any kind of media like way, I felt like shit. Maybe he's felt like shit these past 20 years. Maybe we should have felt sorry for him all of these years. Right. Uh, sorry. It's hard to sorry. feel My sorry for him. What? It's hard to feel sorry for him. No, of course. But the point is, if he says I haven't felt so good in 20 years, all I know is that, you know, OK, you, you felt like shit. Right. Right. That's how bad. I mean, look at him. Look, just look at him. Did you see him on the night of the debate? He was ill that night with something. And it may not have been COVID. It might have been pure lunacy. Right. Right. And Henry, they say that one third of people who've contracted COVID have their mind altered. Right. In some way. They are seeing some neurological complications, not from the perspective of like, uh, what we would consider the, the connection between neurological and physical. So things like altered gait, that's not something that we're seeing in, in very many cases of COVID, but there are a lot of people where they're noticing really severe depressive symptoms, really severe uh, altered, you know, mental states, you know, mood changes and things like that after people are being infected with COVID. The, the mechanism for that's not entirely clear. We, I have a, you know, a fair feeling that the, the virus can cross the blood brain barrier, which is why, um, as we've been saying for months, one of the major symptoms that differentiates COVID from other respiratory conditions is that loss of smell in people that don't have congestion. So if you're not congested, 
you know, you have other respiratory uh, illnesses that might cause congestion and therefore you can't smell things, but you rarely lose your sense of smell without being congested. But in a lot of cases of COVID we are, and that's because the virus is infiltrating the olfactory bulb of the brain. So we do know that the, the virus is likely crossing the blood brain barrier, which isn't super common in other illnesses, but we don't know the mechanism for why these mental states are being affected after the infection with COVID. Right. Professor Harvey JK, before you go, I know you want to get back to your Packers. How are the Packers doing this year? And are you able to enjoy, are you able to enjoy football? I love football. They've won three games so far. Tonight would be the fourth. Um, they're playing here in Green Bay to an empty stadium against the Atlanta Falcons. I heard, I heard my wife shouting downstairs, so they probably did something right in the first 30 minutes. Yeah, I, I heard my dad yelling too, so probably. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait, so, so, is, you're, so even though you're on the Michigan side of the line. The entire a- western half of the UP is Packer fans. The entire Excellent. western half from about. By the way, I, I drove north. To, I had to get out of the. Out of, just had to. Get, I drove north a bit, but not quite that far. And I did think along the way, how far can I get and still get back before before nightfall? And I had thought about <laughs> the contact. So. Well, this is what we'll do. I'll let you go, Professor Harvey J.K. It's good to see you. Good Dave. to see you, and hopefully we can dragoon you into the Veep watch party. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not so sure. Okay. I'm not so sure. All right. Uh, By the way, this Friday night, I will not be there because it's my birthday. You just had one. I just had a birthday? A year ago. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, yeah. time. time my is... wife's birthday was this past weekend. Wow. Happy my birthday. Next All right. This is what we're going to do. We're gonna Happy s- birthday, Professor. Happy Thank birthday. You. That's Timothy Ulrich in Beijing. And we have Professor. Oh, yeah, Ox. right. I remember Timothy. Sure. What, what I'd like to do, if you Bye. don't mind, is say goodbye to Professor Harvey J.K. Thank you. And since we have Henry here, why don't you give us a quick update? We'll take a break. We'll t- do a quick update on rem- Remizdivor and all the stuff and then you can go because you've been working so hard and then we'll wrap the show up with Timothy Ulrich and if Professor Adnan Hussein wants to stick around that would be great so let's take a quick break and listen to the Harvey JK love theme and then we'll go to Henry and then Beijing Harvey JK He's got a lot to say About Thomas Paine And FDR St. Peter, don't you call me Cause I can't go Harvey J.K. is on the show today Harvey J.K. J.K. 
wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical. Won't take a sabbatical. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. Professor Mike Steinel. Coming up, Timothy Ulrich from Global Chinese Television News. He's talking to us from Beijing. And we have Professor Adnan Hussein here. And we'll go to Dan in the newsroom at the end for Community Billboard. Henry Hakamaki is an immunobiologist. He slays Ebola when he's not in Germany. Everybody should subscribe to his newsletter by going to patreon.com forward slash Huck. 1995, you did a great job for COVID Town Squares. Was there any information that you gave out Saturday that you feel should not be behind a paywall? You know, there was only a little bit that I think was really uh, critical to people's health. I'd have to go through it again and make sure that I, you know, find any bits that I think would be useful for people's health. But one of the things that I think was uh, useful was I mentioned a study that was done in China and I'm pretty sure I mentioned it during office hours. So it wouldn't have been recorded um, prior to COVID town squares, which is that there was a study that came out of China and it was a really small study. It was very limited. There was only about, I want to say 273 is the number that comes to my mind. 273 individuals that came into one hospital in one city that were positive with COVID. And it was an observational study that looked at how many of those people wore eyeglasses for at least eight hours a day because of nearsightedness. And they found that under 6% of the people who were coming into the hospital positive with COVID, again, a very small cohort, it's a very limited study, but only about just under 6% of those people wore eyeglasses for over eight hours a day, whereas in the general populace of that city, about 31.5% of the individuals wear eyeglasses for over eight hours a day. So the idea here would be that the eyeglasses are acting basically as eye protection and preventing the virus from getting into your, your eye. And because we know that the virus can replicate in your eye, we actually see viral persistence in the eye uh, and in the, the mucous membranes of the eye for longer than we see in the saliva and respiratory secretions. So we know that the, the virus can replicate there. We know that that can be the start of an infection. And this study found that there was 
what appeared to be a dramatic decrease in the likelihood of infection among people that wore glasses compared to people that didn't. So again, it's a very limited study and I'm going to keep reiterating that because again, there's under 300 people enlisted in the study and they were all in one hospital in one city. But the public health implications here would be that if you do want to prevent yourself from coming down with COVID, you know, let's say you're, you're taking every possible precaution because you are really worried about it because you have some underlying condition or you're elderly, whatever. If you were taking every possible precaution, it's likely that wearing eye protection would decrease your likelihood of being infected by COVID compared to if you didn't wear eyeglasses and you were just wearing a mask, which of course still wear the, <laughs> still wear the mask. But if you wanted to take every possible um, precaution, you would add eyeglasses or safety glasses to that regimen. Is Trump contagious? Yes. Um, assuming that his results that were positive on Thursday uh, were the were when he actually started to display symptoms, yes, he would still be um, infectious. So people that are infected with COVID generally shed virus between 10 and 14 days after they begin showing symptoms, uh, after they are infected, which isn't necessarily after they start showing symptoms. The peak of viral shedding is two days post onset of symptoms. So we've discussed previously where the incubation period, which is the time between when you get the virus into your system and then when you start to show symptoms, ranges for 95% of people between 2 and 14 days. So you get infected and then you don't have symptoms for 2 to 14 days for 95% of people. That's if they have symptoms, which we, we know 30 to 40% of people don't. They are asymptomatic. But if you do show symptoms, the highest level of viral shedding that you have is two days after your symptoms start. So if he started to show symptoms on Thursday, we know he tested positive on Thursday and he tweeted on Friday. This would be just after the peak of viral shedding. So almost certainly he is still shedding virus and at some significant quantities as well, if he is still symptomatic, which based on the current videos that are coming out, he looks like he is having some uh, respiratory distress. He almost certainly is still shedding large amounts of virus, though not the peak amount that he would have been on, let's say, Saturday night, Sunday morning, which would have been about two days after his uh, symptoms would have begun. Okay. The president of the United States has issued a statement on Twitter from the White House. I haven't heard it. Let's listen. Medical Center. And it's really something very special. The doctors, the nurses, the first responders. And I learned so much about coronavirus. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. And you're going to beat it. I went, I didn't feel so good and two days ago, I could have left two days ago. Two days ago, I felt great, like better than I have in a long time. I said just recently, better than 20 years ago. Don't let it dominate. Don't let it take over your lives. Don't let that happen. We have the greatest country in the world. We're going back. We're going back to work. We're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front. I led. Nobody that's a leader would not do what I did. 
And I know there's a risk, there's a danger, but that's okay. And now I'm better and maybe I'm immune. I don't know. But don't let it dominate your lives. Get out there. Be careful. We have the best medicines in the world and it all happened very shortly and they're all getting approved and the vaccines are coming momentarily. Thank you very much. And Walter Reed, what a group of people. Thank you very much. Well, David, that's the first time I've heard that, by the way, because uh, th- that must have just come out. Yes. There's a lot to unpack. Or there. is it maybe he's immune? So it, it's likely if he was showing symptoms that after he clears the virus, assuming he doesn't pull a Herman Cain and die in a couple of weeks, um, that he will have at least some neutralizing antibodies, which would protect him for at least a number of months, if not, you know, one or two years. So, yeah, that, that would be likely. There's only a small percentage of people who are symptomatic that don't generate antibodies uh, after, the, after they're infected. And asymptomatic people, it's something like 30% of individuals who are infected don't end up generating antibodies, to the best of our knowledge. But there's a lot to unpack there. When he says we have the best medicines... Okay, we've got we do have a lot of drugs that we're able to use now. And our standard of care for covid treatment at this point is significantly better than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. But the treatment that he received is going to be unattainable by ninety nine point nine nine percent of Americans. And do we know if could he be hurt by some of these experimental drugs that he's on? Sure. Um, We we know that. uh, Remdesivir, which uh, you mentioned, uh, coming into the in, into this, it's an antiviral uh, compound. We talked about it previously during our COVID towns uh, COVID town halls. Uh, basically, what it does, well, I'm not going to get into the mechanistic side of things because I don't think most people would be interested in that. But what it does in terms of treating people is that it doesn't actually lower the likelihood of death from COVID, but it does shorten the duration of the illness. So if somebody was in a hospital and it generally only works for people that were severely ill, not for people that just have a sniffle or are asymptomatic. But what they found is that if somebody has to get hospital treatment and they're given remdesivir, the likelihood of them dying doesn't decrease by taking remdesivir, but there's like three days less on average that they're required to be in the hospital because they clear the virus faster. Again, doesn't change how likely they are to die. just helps them get rid of it. That has some pretty serious uh, potential side effects associated with it, most notably liver problems. So it's pretty common when uh, individuals are taking remdesivir And it's not, this isn't a drug that was developed for COVID specifically. I just want to uh, underline that. This was originally developed for hepatitis C and then was uh, trialed against Ebola, not super effective against either one of them. Um, When people are treated with this drug, they see a pretty decent spike in liver enzymes, which is an indication that there's some liver distress going on. That's just one of the drugs that, that he was on. And that's, you know, liver problems aren't necessarily going to kill you today, but at somebody 74 years old, your liver is going to be more susceptible than somebody who's younger. And so damaging the liver in that way is maybe not the best long term. Dexamethasone, which is a, a glucocorticoid, uh, it's a steroid anti inflammatory that he was on. This is one of the more promising drugs um, that we have in the fight against COVID. And we've discussed it previously, but I'm just going to run through it real quick. 
this is what may have caused the mania, right? This is the one that they're saying might have caused potential mania. It's pretty rare for people to get the quote unquote delusions of grandeur. Um, and by pretty uncommon, I mean, it's, it's fairly uncommon. Uh, it's not super uncommon for people to have mood swings, uh, irritability, anger, aggression, those kind of things aren't super uncommon when on dexamethasone, but the delusions of grandeur just, it sounds fun. So people pick that up, even though it's rare and happiness, right? Extreme happiness. Yeah. It's, it's the mood swings that you'll see, you know, ping ponging between signs of euphoria and then it's severe aggression. That's not that uncommon. You know, it's not a large percentage, but it's not that uncommon, but what dexamethasone does, and we've discussed this previously, in severe cases of COVID, most of the damage in the body is happening because of your own immune cells attacking, uh, not necessarily attacking your own body, but at, in the response to the virus, they end up causing a lot of collateral damage in your in your body. And that's where a lot of the damage is taking place. So dexamethasone, basically what it does is it turns down that immune response. So you're not responding as you know, strongly against the virus, which some people might think, oh yeah, that doesn't sound good. You know, you want your immune system to respond to the virus. That way you can get rid of it. But when you have this overreactive hyperinflammatory response, then by damping that down just a little bit, you're still allowing for viral clearance, but you're not going to have a lot of that damage associated with it. So that actually does cut the severity and the likelihood of death in the most severe cases. And Trump was given dexamethasone dexamethasone increases the likelihood for secondary infections because you're turning down the immune system. It causes these uh, altered mental states, uh, increases the likelihood for, I I believe, uh, GI bleeds, but I'm not positive on that one, so don't quote me on that one. But but you're right. We gave him a lot of drugs as well as an experimental treatment that's not even approved for usage in in the public yet, um, which is the monoclonal antibody cocktail that that you've heard about. Um, we don't know what the potential side effects of that are likely not too many because monoclonal antibodies are, are fairly safe. But the point is, is that we're giving him a lot of drugs right now to try to keep him at peak, peak performance and decrease the likelihood of him suffering severely as much as possible. But most of these drugs have at least a mild possibility of having side effects associated with them. Okay, before you go, Joseph Biden was on NBC. I guess he did a town hall tonight with Lester Holt. This is what he said Monday night. Anybody who contracts the virus by essentially saying masks don't matter, social distancing doesn't matter, I think, is responsible for what happens to them. That's that's a that's a surprisingly bold statement from the media. And. That's Biden. You know, that's Biden. Oh, that's Biden. I thought you said that that was Lester Hayes that said that. No, no, it was or, uh, Bi- uh, Joe, Joe Biden. Okay, not Lester Hayes. That's the Oakland, uh, L.A. Raiders from the eighties. Anyway, um, what do you believe? Nineteen eighty. What do you, What do you say to that? I okay. So I, I'm going to keep this relatively politics free because I talk about politics all the time on your show, David. I'm just going to to stick to the science for this part so that people can get kind of an objective look at this. Um, When somebody is actively saying that people shouldn't wear masks, people shouldn't 
you know, try to socially distance too much. People shouldn't avoid crowded indoor areas like restaurants and bars where we know that super spreading is likely to occur if there's infected people present at those establishments. That person is responsible for a number of cases and a number of deaths. Whether or not you want to say, yeah, that person was responsible for a lot of cases, so therefore they also should be you know, punished somehow, that's a political decision and one that you, you know my thoughts on, and I'm sure all of the listeners know my thoughts on. But what I will say is that if we just take that point aside for the moment and say that his statements and his actions and you know the things that he performatively does for his base have been responsible for tens if not hundreds of thousands of cases and possibly over 100,000 deaths in the U.S. at this time because of the lack of response and the muddying of the, the waters in terms of the, the messaging that they're putting out to people. Now, how you want to treat somebody that's responsible for perhaps 100,000 unnecessary deaths is up to you. But we should make it clear that by putting this messaging out there, he is directly responsible for hundreds of thousands of cases as well as up to or perhaps in excess of 100,000 deaths, either yeah. you know, through just his messaging or the botched response in terms of the policy side of things. So whether he has it coming to him, I'll leave the listeners up to that. But before, yeah, we do have to go, understand that the, he is responsible for that. Before you go, I don't pay attention to Fox News. But a lot of old people watch Fox News. That's their demographic. And they are susceptible to brainwashing and COVID-19. I'm going to play you a clip of a Fox News anchor. Her name is Shannon Bream. She had a guest on named Ethan Behrman. He's with Hometown Values Pack. He's, I guess, anti-Trump. And this guy, Ethan Behrman, was on Fox News complaining about how the Trump family showed up at the debate. They took off their masks during the debate. They were asked, somebody from the Cleveland Clinic asked them, please put your mask on, and they refused. This is on Fox. This is millions of people, old people, your grandparents, watching Shannon Bream. Very small steps. He refused to wear a mask. He paraded around mocking masks. Joe Biden actually put a mask on and demonstrated how the American people should do that. That is one piece of a strategy that should have been done in the first place. The entire Trump family at the debate refused to wear their masks per the Cleveland Clinic. I mean, come on, you guys. Lead by example. And you're not leading by example. You're leading by conspiracy, Brad. Masks masks are not... They're one, key, not, they're one critical component in the puzzle. If you look at it's any science, Brad, if you thing. bother looking at science, okay. you'll okay. see how it stops let's, spreading the aerosols. And that's a critical component. Let's pause it there. And let's remember, we've had experts over the last few months change their positions on this mask thing. So um, everybody's trying to do their best, I hope, uh, to to be responsible. But, you know, we have had conflicting and changing advice over the last six months. And we'll get more as we learn more. Shannon Bream says everybody's doing their best. 
that there's conflicting. That's, that's just a blatant lie, David. Let's call it as it is. People are not doing their best. The science has been clear for at least, you said the science has been changing within the last six months. We haven't had changes to the stances on whether or not masks are effective within the last six months. The discussion on that was about eight, nine months ago at this point. And it was relatively clear even back then that there was likely to be at least some benefit from mask wearing even nine months ago. By still parading around without wearing a mask, as uh, the man that was speaking was saying, is not paying attention to the science. And you can't claim to be doing the best job possible if you're supposed to be the person leading the response and at this point, the global response. But this is I'm talking about the Fox News, the irresponsibility of Fox. I mean, there should be like a class action suit against Fox News for spreading, disseminating fake information, lethal information. Isn't there? I, I mean, I, I agree with that, David. But there's a lot of people that I would bring charges against for different things. And I've listed a few of them, uh, individuals that were responsible for lying to the American public about the ineffectiveness of masks early on, which allowed for the muddying of the waters that we're seeing now. It's because of those initial statements when they knew that masks are effective, but they were worried about the supply chain. Instead of being honest about it, they lied to the people and that allowed for the muddying of the waters nine months later. Um, I've talked about how Trump should be held criminal liable for criminal negligent manslaughter for his uh, ineffective response despite knowing full well uh, what what COVID was basically all about back in February. I've said Bob Woodward should also be charged with criminal negligent manslaughter and tried for it because he also knew that information. He's known it for again at this point about eight months and he withheld it because his publishers wanted him to put it in his book without anybody else picking it up and making it a major news story so it would make the book more more read-worthy? I'm sorry, but withholding that information was responsible for tens of thousands of deaths and hundreds of thousands of cases. Right. And Bob Woodward, as a journalist, it was his journalistic duty yes. to try to put the information out into the public to protect people. So, yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the choir on this, Dave. When people put mis misinformation out there or withhold information that would keep people safe and healthy, I'm all in favor of trying those people for that misinformation. But that doesn't it's not limited just to Fox News. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. That was a great example of misinformation or just trying of muddying of the waters, despite all evidence to the contrary. I think Shannon Bream's name should be changed to misinformation. That would be something to consider. Henry Huckamacki's newsletter. Subscribe to it by going to patreon.com forward slash Huck1995. When we come back, we're going to go to Beijing and talk with Timothy Ulrich. Thank you so much, Henry Huckamacki. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. <laughs> And you give your loyalty to a Jew before your own blood. It's time to talk about Donald John Trump. <coughs> okay. <coughs> okay. 
Timothy Ulrich from China Global Television News joins us from Beijing. And we have Professor Adnan Hussein. Last time you were with us, you were in Mongolia and Professor Adnan Hussein had questions for you about your vacation. So feel free to uh, join us, Professor Adnan Hussein. Timothy, how are things in Beijing? Oh, they're going great. Um, actually, I went and did a stand-up last week. I'm in, a professional in, comedian now, I guess. In China? Yeah. Yeah. So they have comedy clubs in, in Beijing? I mean, they have open mics. There's a couple of comedy clubs in Beijing. Actually, um, Were they wearing masks? You know How many Wong? people? Hang on for one second. Were they wearing masks? Were people seated? Was it cramped? Oh, no, no, no masks. I mean, it's not required. You, uh, you register when you come in. Use an app and you register. So, so they do contract. Uh, there's some potential for contact. Yep. Okay. Um, so describe for us. Do we'll you happen to know Joe Wong? Do I owe him money? Joe Wong. Um <laughs> he's a um <clears throat> he was born in China but he um he found some success in the LA comedy scene so I thought you might know him but maybe he said not success I don't know. he it's found success there, sure. I wouldn't know him if he found success uh <laughs> let's talk about the the situation in Beijing and China regarding COVID-19 if you were to walk the streets of Beijing right now, would everybody be wearing masks? No, mask off right now. The, the Beijing government has officially, the municipal government has said you don't need to wear a mask when you're outside. Obviously, when you go into like a 7-Eleven or something, you have to wear a mask. But when you're on the streets, no. I mean, I don't, I don't wear my mask unless... When I'm outside, unless I'm in a crowded area. Is COVID-19 under control in Beijing? Right now, yes, but there are health officials warning that during the winter cases could spike. So there is a um, you can you can kind of feel it in the air. It's a. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a sigh of relief, but at the same time, a lot of people are very skeptical. But a, a healthy skepticism, I'd say. Are there reports of people dying from COVID-19? Because there were some stories that it's been pretty much eradicated, except for a couple of pockets. Right, right. Um, deaths as of recent um, I haven't seen any, any reports of it. The latest figures I have is 20 imported cases. So that's non-community transmissions. These are most likely Chinese nationals coming back into China who have been infected. I mean, yeah, deaths have, have been at a very low point for, for quite some time now. People have stopped talking about it. 
the deaths or, or COVID-19. The the way, I mean, here in the United States, we're seeing spikes in Manhattan and New York City and Brooklyn. So people are talking about COVID-19. Is this does it? You see, oh, man. Is this something that has? No, it's still it's still here. Yeah, I mean, it's still ever present in people's minds. It's still very ingrained. It. I mean, I have to wear a, a mask when I go to work eight hours a day. You know, I mean, there's there's no uh, nobody's not taking this seriously. I, I mean, it's a, it's a global pandemic. Nobody. Uh, I mean, everybody's taking it very seriously because they know how. Uh, how important this is to take it seriously. The Regal movie chain here in the United States is shutting down. Nobody is going to Broadway plays. Those have been shut down. Has the theater opened? Are movie theaters opened? Are restaurants at full capacity? Yep. At full capacity. Full capacity for restaurants. I mean, they can be. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Um, so what do you attribute to it? Is, is it I've because been, you can control in China, they can control the people much better than they can in the United States or Great Britain? What happens if you don't wear a mask when you're supposed to? I mean, you're just shunned. You look like a jackass. I mean, that doesn't really happen in the U.S., right? <laughs> Can you, be, can you be fined no for not wearing a mask? I mean, are the, are the, mas the masks are mandatory, correct? So if I walk into a into a 7-Eleven, for example, oh, hold on, can you still hear me? Yes. My connection good? Yeah. Said it was unstable. Okay, so if I walked into a 7-Eleven right now without a mask on, they would tell me to kindly leave. I mean, it, it, it's just that's just the norm. You wear a mask. Um, I know that you asked me this last time and I had been thinking about it. Really, it comes down to state planning. That is the key to this is to be able to have the mechanisms available to respond to public health crisis. For example, uh, I mean, food shortages, these are these are things that are baked into the entire design of China. OK, I mean, it, you asked me last time about authoritarianism, if that was if that had anything to do with it. And it's like, uh, I mean, no, I reject that thesis. It's that the the economy is designed. It's not just let to. Uh, run rampant okay. it's not let to um, just control everything the, the mask production and everything that's not that's not based on profit it's based on need and I think that that's a major difference Professor Hussein do you want to join have any questions well firstly I just wondered hi, um, professor hi Tim great to see you again um, I was wondering, you keep saying if you go into a 7-Eleven, do you mean the kind of store, like a little corner store for basic or a convenience store, or are there lots of 7-Elevens in uh, China? Uh, so in the north, they legit have 7-Elevens. These are part of the global chain of 7-Elevens. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. Interesting. Well, I know that... Um, 
uh, David is always peppering you with questions about uh, the COVID situation in China, but obviously China yep. is a major country with so much uh, going on that surely there are some other important topics we should ask you about. What are the big news stories or what are people discussing, talking about going through in China right now that we wouldn't know about because it's not really being reported? in our media? I would say, that's a really good question. I would say that Trump getting COVID is a massive story. Okay, Trump being infected is something that's making headlines around the world, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the irony is lost on people in China. That, you know, he spoke at the, at the, uh, obviously the debates, but the UN general assembly. Yeah. He said, uh, you know, the, the, everything's because of the China Chinese virus. Everything's uh, blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, he gets infected. You know, I mean, uh, uh, the, like I said, the irony is not lost on people here. What, what, that Trump so are you saying that that's, that's what's big in the comedy clubs in China is uh, <laughs> you know, laughing about uh, Trump getting COVID? I mean, there's probably some people laughing about it as there are uh, on people in the left in America because it, it's very ironic. It's just one of those absolutely surreal moments that's just mind-boggling to a lot of people uh actually professor hussein it it isn't ironic it's one of the few things that made sense this year to me i i I don't wish anybody ill but (laughs) when i read about the white house turning into this petri dish (laughs) i thought all right i don't want anybody to be hurt but finally something makes sense yeah, cause and effect seems to actually yeah. be functioning in this circumstance. Yes. Could so she, much. would she ever be photographed not wearing a mask or talking about the stupidity of masks? Um, man, that's a tough subject. And you bring it up. Uh, I mean, no, he's been wearing a mask. He, uh, he did a visit. I'm trying to remember when it was around March. And it was near, it was near my neighborhood in Beijing. He just went and met with, you know, community leaders and uh, people who were living there. He was obviously wearing a mask and he was just saying, you know, we can get through this together. But he, um, he wasn't doing that like Trump did, you know, Trump, only said that after he got infected, which is an interesting point. I mean, yeah, yeah. So it's it, it, it's a very contrasting circumstance between uh, what's uh, what Trump has been doing versus what the president of China has been doing. What else? So I guess the real, yep. the real question we should ask uh, Timothy Ulrich uh, here is uh, whether. Uh, this was an attempt by the Chinese to interfere in the U.S. election. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And this, this will. Oh. Hang on. Let me let me just go open up my QAnon Reddit account. This will Thank continue. You for 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's where it's going to going to pervade and there's going to be a lot of backlash against China about this. It's very worrisome. I mean, uh Tom Cotton already came out and said like this was an assassination attempt or this could have been an assassination attempt against the president. Uh Diane Lorraine I don't know if you guys know her. She's famous on Twitter. She got a blue check mark and just tweets out the absurd things. That's what she tweeted was, you know, hey, can we call this an assassination attempt by the Chinese? And so a million people, one mega death of people have died in the world. Uh, that just, no, no, that doesn't. Well, that's what's called uh, collateral damage. It just blows damage. my mind. You know, that's just collateral damage. I mean, uh, I haven't actually seen the seen the death statistics recently, but it's like seventy thousand Chinese people. I mean, that's the collateral. No, it's just horrendous that that people would think that there is actually some intent of maliciousness in order to get the president infected like what it just does there's too many dots and they just don't add up i I don't get it i really don't well speaking to professor hussein's question what are the stories that people are talking about in beijing you know i haven't heard much i was i was off that day the news was announced so i wasn't in the newsroom um a guy who lives in my building, who's like, um, you know, a, a drinking buddy invites, he invites me to go drinking with him. Sometimes he, he told, he told me he was all like, Hey, did you hear that Trump got infected? And he started laughing, <laughs> he, you know, just kind of a chuckle. And it's like, yeah, I, I know. I know. I mean, to me, it's, it's freaking embarrassing. Like what? Him, <sighs> It's just so terrible. It's so crushing to, you know, be a foreigner and your country's leader gets infected by the coronavirus. It's just totally embarrassing. Um, I don't actually think that there has been official announcements from Beijing on this. I mean, uh, President Xi sent a letter to Trump saying, you know, get uh, best wishes that kind of thing. But aside from that, it's nothing nefarious as, as, as some people might make it out to be, if that makes sense. Right. Right. Fantastic. All right. Timothy Ulrich in Beijing. You'll come back next week. Uh, next week. Okay. You'll, we'll have to chat about this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you. For joining us, Professor Adnan mm-hmm. Hussein, thank you for joining us. Henry Huckamaki, thank you for joining us. We're going to wrap it up because we have our vice presidential debate watch party Wednesday. So I want to keep today's show under 50 hours so we can save uh, our guests. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. When we come back, we'll do the community billboard. And we'll say goodbye to everybody. We'll be right back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show.
welcome back, Henry. Hello, David. So I was thinking after, uh, I wasn't prepared to think about what we had talked about at COVID Town Squares and think if there was anything that was beneficial for the audience. But uh, after my segment, I was thinking about it. And there was something else that I had pulled up that um, I think might be useful for people, not necessarily in terms of keeping yourself uh, safe, because these are things that you can't change, but at least being aware of the risks. So I took some meta-analysis, um, which just meta-analysis is when you take a bunch of different studies or a bunch of different numbers from different hospitals, et cetera, compile them, and then analyze that entire data set as a whole. So just imagine it's study it's a study combining a bunch of other studies. And so I looked at some meta-analyses, um, for the likelihood of hospitalization and death with different comorbidities that are things that don't change very quickly. So specifically obesity and um, age. So again, you can't change your age. You can't change your obesity, but it might be useful for the audience to know their, their risk factor based on how old they are or whether they're obese or not. So that way they can make informed decisions about what kind of risks they would like to take going into public. So let's start with um, age in, in, as a, a function of risk. If we compare people, so this is comparing uh, elderly individuals to people that are my age, between 18 and 29. That's the comparison group for this meta-analysis. So if you take people that are between 18 and 29 as your baseline, um, and then you compare these older groups, we find that people that are between, well, David, your age group, 50 to 64, they're four times more likely to be hospitalized and 30 times more likely to die than somebody my age. People between 65 and 74 are five times more likely to be hospitalized and 90 times more likely to die. So Donald Trump is at the absolute maximum end of that uh, subset. And if he was one year older, he would fall into the oldest category, which is 75 to 84. The, the study stops at 84. Those individuals are eight times more likely to be hospitalized and 220 times more likely to die than somebody my age. Then if we look at obesity, um, we know that we've known for a while that people that are obese, uh, in addition to having other comorbidities more commonly, like type 2 diabetes, for example, which is another comorbidity that increases the likelihood of hospitalization and death in the case of COVID. The obesity itself is also a comorbidity. So even if those people don't have other comorbidities like diabetes or high cholesterol, the obesity itself is a comorbidity. And what they found, again, meta-analysis, is that someone who is obese, which Donald Trump is clinically obese based on his current uh, listed weight, Somebody that is obese is about twice as likely as somebody who is not obese but has every other factor that's in common. They're the same age. They have the same underlying illnesses, et cetera, et cetera. The only thing that's different between them is their, their weight, basically. The obese person is about twice as likely to end up in the hospital as the person who um, is not obese. 
they're 74% more likely to end up in the ICU compared to somebody who is not obese. And they're just under 50% more likely to die uh, than somebody who's not obese. So one and a half times the likelihood. I think it was 48%. That's the number that comes in my head, 47 or 48%. But just about a 50% increase in um, the likelihood of death if somebody is just obese compared to not obese. And that's normalizing for every other comorbidity. So if you are obese or in one of those elderly ages, now you have a little bit more information on your likelihood for needing hospitalization or potentially even dying if you're infected with COVID. And that hopefully will allow you to make informed decisions on on the kind of activities that you partake in and the risks that you take. uh, Because You know, there's a lot of people, almost 40% of the country is obese and uh, a lot of people are are older. And so if you fall into either and especially if you fall into both of those categories, it's it's important to know the risks so that you can you can mitigate your risk and and reduce the likelihood that you are going to have a severe illness and potentially die from COVID. So did you have a chance to to see? Thank you for that. Did you have a chance to see Trump's speech from the White House? He looked distressed. He looked like he was being pumped up. And some people are suggesting it might be pneumonia already. You know, I didn't see the, the, the clip that you just played. I haven't seen that video yet. The, the last video of him that I saw was when, and I mentioned it during Harvey J.K., J- Harvey J.K.'s uh, segment, was when he was getting dropped off at the White House out of Marine One. Yeah. Um, you know, he walked up the steps in the mask. He took the mask off, stuffed it in his pocket, and then really looked like he was sucking fumes uh, and, you know, was saluting the helicopter and was trying to put on a brave face. But to me, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a pulmonologist. And of course, it's hard to tell whether or not somebody's in respiratory distress or just they're a 74-year-old obese individual who just walked up a flight of stairs. But to me, it looked like his his breathing was not normal. Um Taking the mask off was an absolutely terrible decision, both from a health standpoint of the people that were around, but as well as a marketing standpoint. You'd think that somebody who, uh, you know, thinks that he's a master brander would know that taking the mask off so people could see him sucking fumes at the top of the stairs would not be the best decision. But uh, evidently that that thought didn't cross his mind or he thought that he would be able to hide it. But at least to me. It, it looked like uh, he was having at least some respiratory distress beyond what would be expected from a 74-year-old who just walked up a flight of stairs. Tom in Portland. I was just going to ask Henry a quick follow-up question on the comorbidity study. Um, I've been encouraged here, you know, that treatment has been getting a lot better in hospitals since early days, uh, early horrible days in March and April and May, obviously because of experience. So I wonder if... Um, uh, the study took that into account, the numbers that you gave. If you understand yes. So most of these numbers, the numbers for each age group were taken at the same time points. So you're right that early on the death rate and the number of severe cases was much higher as a proportion of the overall number of cases than it is now. And that's because of a couple of factors. We're catching a lot more uh, mild cases as well as asymptomatic cases now than we were at the beginning when we didn't have much testing. Early on, the cohort of people was much older than it is now. A lot of young people are getting sick right now. For example, since the beginning of uh, college openings, 
the number of college-aged uh, individuals who have been testing positive is more than doubled what it was before the college opening. So the number of young people is really increasing, which we know decreases the overall death rate. But yeah, in those studies, what they were doing basically is taking all of the patients that were coming in from the beginning that we had uh, data for from hospital records and saying, okay, this person was 25 years old, COVID positive, you know, they had to be hospitalized, but they didn't die. Okay. This person was 70 years old, blah, 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 blah. They took all of these cases all the way from the beginning when, as we said, the standard of care for COVID patients was not ideal. Let's just put it that way because it was a brand new virus that nobody had tried to treat before versus now where our, our care regimen is much better than it was at the beginning. But they took the data points all the way from the beginning to the end and compared apples to apples, normalizing for age, treatments that the people were on, other comorbidities like diabetes, um, cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera. They tried to make it as apples to apples as possible by factoring out. And they do that mathematically rather than, than by like looking at each line and then just pulling patients out of the cohort. They mathematically um, normalize for, for those other sorts of confounding factors. And by doing that, that was how they were able to determine how much more likely somebody was as a factor simply of age or obesity than people that were at a different age group or not obese because they've already normalized for all, all of those other uh, confounding factors. So yeah, that was a great question, Tom, and there's your answer. Thank you, Tom in Portland. Thank you, Henry. Let's go to the newsroom where Dan Frankenberger is standing by. Tell us about the community billboard today, please. Well, before I slide into that, I had one quick thing for Henry, if he's got a minute. There was an interesting comment in the, the YouTube a little while ago. Um, where a guy named M posted that Herman Cain passed away 37 days after the Tulsa super spreader rally and the Rose Guard Garden super spreader uh, rally event was held on 926. So November 1st will be 37 days from that uh, Rose Garden event. So as far as thinking a little bit about of a timeline of when some of these people are getting sick versus the, um, right. The, yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, you're right that we see this kind of temporal delay between when people are infected and when people die. And we have this temporal delay between when people are infected, and when they start to show symptoms and then when they start to show symptoms and die. So, yeah, I mean, you would expect there to be, you know, be somewhere between two weeks and maybe just over a month between the event that is causing uh, a large number of people to become ill and the people that were at that event actually dying. So it's, yeah, an interesting point that that was 37 days that wouldn't necessarily be reflective of the broader population because Herman Cain was getting a really high standard of care and they were, they were keeping him on the, you know, best ventilators that money could buy basically to try to keep him alive, which allowed him to persist longer than somebody with, let's say no health insurance or substandard health insurance would be able to, those people would succumb a lot quicker. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and we also don't know a lot of those people. We know that it was likely that they were infected at that Rose Garden, uh, Amy Coney Barrett celebration type deal. But it, that's not necessarily when all of them were infected. You know, we don't know whether or not the Rose Garden infected people that were Trump were in contact with or Trump got infected on the plane with Hope Hicks the day before the debate. We don't know exactly when that would happen. So, 
yeah, it's hard to tell like when we would expect things to take a turn for the worse, if they were going to take a turn for the worse, again, keeping in mind that he's getting the best medical care that anybody in the world could possibly get no expenses being spared. His, his treatments that he's gotten have already, uh, they're, they're pushing probably a hundred thousand dollars worth of, of just treatment at this point. Nobody else would really be able to afford it. And a lot of people wouldn't even have access to the things like that monoclonal antibody experimental treatment. So yeah, it's interesting to think about in terms of the time, because we do know that there's a big delay between the event and people at the event dying. If so, but it's hard to tell how many people we can expect to get sick from that event or die until we actually see it happening. Right. To be continued. Thank you, as always, Henry. Follow Henry on Twitter at Huck1995. Subscribe to his newsletter by going to patreon.com forward slash Huck1995. When is the next COVID town squares? It should be not this Saturday, but the following Saturday, which if my math is serving me, should be something like the 17th or something like that. Yeah, you don't don't want to miss it. Thank you, Henry. Let's find out what's happening with Community Billboard, Dan. Well, I have uh, a few entries here having to do with Andy Brown and Sarah Bush. The first one uh, from Andy Brown. He sent me a message that Andy Brown is back and has quelled the so-called coup and has reclaimed control of the Feldovers. Okay. Any future insurrections will be met with an iron fist. Join his <laughs> Discord. He set up the Discord group for all of us. So go on Discord. From, well, we're going to have to have Andy on to explain how fans of this show can join the Discord group. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's an easy way to verbally... Yeah, Andy could do it. But yeah. What, so next- um, then we have from Sarah Bush... Uh, she asks, Sandy and Andy's cat Maggie needs some thoughts and prayers. She's getting her ear drained again. Oh, okay. Or Maggie. Yeah. And then two anonymous ones concerning uh, these guys. The first one says, this is ridiculous. Andy Brown is not a pickle juice drinking D-bag. That must have come from uh, Sweden. And then the following anonymous one said, oh, yes, he is. <laughs> All right. Is that it from the, is that it? Nope. I got a few more. Oh, good. Good. Uh, Tom Weber had an amazing hour and a half long concert on Facebook this weekend. Uh Um, He and his wife, Barb, performed some classics and some originals and their Facebook page is Tom and Barb Weber singer songwriters. And they perform songs for a half hour for their uh, fans every Tuesday night at eight Eastern and every other Saturday night at eight Eastern for an hour and a half. And if you search for Tom and Barb Weber, yeah. um, that's W-E-B-B-E-R. Somebody should make uh, an Facebook. album of Tom speaking at office hours. Yeah, he's a I get captivated every time he, yeah. he starts going on. What else? A second part of um talking about Tom Weber is he's also selling some of his artwork in an online event this coming uh, week. It's uh, on October 10th. If you go to my.boothcentral.com and search for the event name, which is OLOL Oktoberfest, and that's with a K, um, you'll find the event in which uh, you'll see Tom Weber art and give me that website one more time, please. Yep. My.boothcentral.com. And you search for O-L-O-L Oktoberfest, A-K-T-O. So Fantastic. Fantastic. That's great. And then we have um, a message from the from the Marks guys doing their group that we listened into uh, on Sunday. Uh, hashtag Weekly Marks. And 
on Twitter at Weekly Marks was hosted by the ethereal goddess Professor Ann Lee on Sunday. And there's some deep, deep thoughts and crystal clear Marks insight from the renowned smartest person in the Feldman universe. Yeah. And we hope desperately is now a monthly feature. Next week, our very own uh, Dave from PA will be the author of the Weekly Marks Sunday oh, at 4.30. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. Um, and uh, he's going to bring the voice for FU, a, a voice of our petite bourgeoisie craft folk. <laughs> <laughs> they got a couple more quick ones. Uh, a shout out to Invisible Ninja. He's been putting out some great artwork. His uh, website is thepeoplescomic.com. Um, at the end of the COVID Town Square shows, we've had radio plays going on, and there's a Twitter account for that. Um, the show is COVID Confidential, and the Twitter account is at COVID underscore radio. I want to give a shout out to Dr. Jen the last few weeks that she's been putting out some, some good appearances on the show. So her Twitter is at real Dr. Jen. Right. And, and we're going to do a special evening with Dr. Jen Saturday night. And we're oh, going to do it for YouTube. We'll, we'll talk great. about that. Uh, her website tell everybody. Is, you go ahead. Yeah. Her, her website is jenniferverland.com and her YouTube channel is called wild connection TV. Right. Real Dr. Jen on Twitter. Yep. And the lastly, just wanted to remind everyone, if you wanted to get a message up on the community billboard, you can email to dentfeldman at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger. As always, you are you are irreplaceable. Thank you. All right. I want to remind everybody that we're going to have a big uh, vice presidential debate watch party Wednesday night. So please go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the attend a live taping menu and sign up. You'll get an invitation. If you're already in the system, we'll send you a pre-registration. And then we're going to do a podcast after the vice presidential debates Wednesday night, which will be live streaming as well on YouTube. Download this as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And I'll see you at the vice presidential debate watch party. I want to thank our guests, Professor Mike Steinell, Mark Breslin, founder and president of Yuck Yucks, Howie Klein, founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, Dr. Harriet Fraud, host of When Capitalism Hits Home, Professor Adnan Hussein, I didn't get to spend enough time with him today, and Professor Harvey J.K., Timothy Ulrich from China Global Television News, talking to us from Beijing, and of course, Henry Huckamaki and Dan in the newsroom. Thank you. I hope to see everybody Wednesday night for our debate watch party. Bye-bye. Thank you. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way 